This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Ralph Darden. We are conducting this interview on November 8th, 2015 uh, at my home in the Roxborough neighborhood of Philadelphia. And this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Ralph. Hello. I haven't actually seen you before today, meeting up today, since like 1492 or yeah. something. It's been yeah. a long <laughs> time. Maybe, I'm going I'm to guess about 10 years. Yeah, yeah, probably. About Sounds about years. right. Because I moved out. I moved out of Philly about ten years ago. I went, or yeah, going on eleven maybe. I've been in Chicago since about two thousand five, I think. Mm -hmm. But yeah, man, it's been a long time. Long time. What's go What's going on? Uh, well, we're doing a delightful <laughs> interview now. Uh, and you're here, you're staying at your mom's place yeah, in Mount Yeah, staying at my mom's house uh, in Mount Airy. Is that where you grew up in Mount Airy? Yeah, that's part of, I guess that's where I spent my formative years, yeah. yeah where, were you born? I was born in South Philly. Okay. And I lived all over Philadelphia. I lived in North Philly for a while. Um, I lived in, but we settled in Mount Airy after. The, the funny thing is that we were, I was born in South Philly my parents moved to New Jersey for a year. Don't tell nobody. Mm. Don't, don't tell anybody. New they Jersey. Moved, they moved to Jersey for a year. <laughs> Fooey. Yeah, that's part of my past. I like to keep hitting Well, that's the end of the that's interview. <laughs> Says the person who grew up in New Jersey. Skeleton in my closet. Um, for a year, and then we moved to Mount Airy. But then my parents split up, and then I lived in uh, North Philly for a while, South Philly for a while. South Philly was like my, when I think of childhood, that's where I think of is 15th and Ellsworth. Mm -hmm. And I think of um, eating hoagies at Molino's at 15th on 15th Street, which is, I've literally been eating all of my life. So every <laughs> Is the place still there? Yeah, it's still there. Have you gone back since you came Oh, I back? go back. There's, it's, it's like, it's like going through like, uh, like a custom security for me uh -huh. when you come to Philly. Yeah, it's obligatory. Yeah, I have to go. Yeah. And then the guys that work there, um, they know my family like they'll tell me more about my family. They'll be like, "Oh, how you doing? How's your aunt? Is your aunt still over there? And uh, your mom's on vacation with Norm in Mexico. What's going on? You know, like like they know. You get a brain aneurysm when you hear. Yeah, like I'm accent. like, oh my god. I'm like, Mark knows more about my family than I do. Mm -hmm. Like, and their dad sold hookies to my grandma. That's it's it's amazing. awesome. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. And that's the the essence of um. I try to tell people uh, that come to Philadelphia that have never been to visit that. You have to eat. Like, people are always like, oh, cheesesteaks, man, man, man. I'm like, the cheesesteak, fine. But the real essence of Philadelphia food is the bread. Anything that's bread-based, which is why the Philly soft pretzel, I will put up against any pretzel in the world. I've been to the place where the pretzel was invented. And uh, it was either... The, that was Pretzelville? I think it was in Bavaria. I can't remember. Anyway, at any rate, but I will put it up against any pretzel in the world. Because it's just bread, and it's the water. You can't emulate that anywhere. Is it the water? It's the, or it's, the water. It's the it's the water. <laughs> the, water. Yeah, well, the water is what yeah. makes it taste so good. <laughs> it's 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 amazing, and I crave that stuff because I you know I live in Chicago now. I split my time between Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, I'm 41 now, and I'm in decent shape, and hopefully want to stay in somewhat decent shape. So I try not to eat too much garbage. But um, when I come home, all bets are off. I'm just like, hoagies, cheesesteaks, pretzels. Like, uh, give me a hoagie with a pretzel in it. And, uh, <laughs> and that probably exists. <laughs> I mean, it probably exists. Give me a, wrap it up with a molina, with a, a slice of Lorenzo's. Like, let's do this, you know. So, because it's all because of that, that, that water bread. Mm -hmm. That makes it so delicious. And I crave it. I'm pretty sure there's drugs in it. Because uh, <laughs> it like, has the addictive properties. It has addictive properties. Because I crave it when I leave, when I'm not home. So, But at any rate, yes. And I grew up in Mount Airy. 
Now, what was Mount Airy like in the time that you were growing up there? It was, you know what? It was awesome. I actually, I'm really thankful that my mom uh, chose to, chose for us to move there because it's, I, I think at some point in the late 70s, Mount Airy was, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know the, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, Mount Airy was, was called the, noted as the most diverse neighborhood in the country by like Newsweek magazine or something like that back mm -hmm. in, back when I was a kid. Um, and it was great. What I get, what I gleaned from it was this, this uh, exposure to all kinds of people. Because uh, Philly is a notoriously segregated town, uh, uh, be it racially or economically, you know. Um, but Mount Airy is great because in Mount Airy, you go in any direction and you'll get anything. Like you'll go one direction. I mean, there was literally like an estate across the street from my house, like this man, like a mansion type place. Mm -hmm. But then if you go like four blocks in the other direction, there was like a housing project. And another direction, it's just a neighborhood, a block full of just like black families. And in another block, it'll be, you know, you, you, it's a little bit of everything. And but it's all set against the backdrop of like lawns and trees and mm -hmm. some nature. Yeah, it is very aesthetically yeah. pleased. And yeah. it's very close to Fairmount Park. It's too. very close yeah. to Fairmount Park. Yeah. And you can also hop on a train and be downtown in 15 minutes or drive or ride your bike. And yeah, it is still the city. I mean, I think sometimes people who are yeah. in other parts of the mm -hmm. city think it is a suburb. Right, people right. People think that here Roxborough is a suburb as well. But no, it is Philadelphia. Just because it's mm -hmm. a tree right. doesn't mean that it is not an actual city. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's uh, it was great growing up in that uh, environment. And it was also perfect because it was just me and my mom. We were like, you know, like middle class, like working class um family of two you know? what was she doing for a living she worked my mom worked the, i got a crazy story for you my yeah. mom this is nuts uh -huh. this is nuts um, i have some black cherry tea first I have some black cherry tea my mom had a hand in inventing voicemail no shit really my mom my entire family worked at the phone company mm -hmm. my entire family worked at bella at the time it was called bella, bella like, right, myself yeah, i was a telecom tech for a while too but my entire family worked at the phone company sometime in the 90s i can't remember the the around the exact time but but sometime in the 90s, uh, no, it was late 80s, I think, late 80s. At any rate, it was post-answering um, machine, because mm -hmm. uh, anytime phone technology came about, we had it. So we had answering machines, and we had like any kind, like my mom had one of the first uh, cell phones, or first mobile phones, when it was like a giant box right, phone. The U.S. Army field phone. Yeah, 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 exactly. We had all that crap, but... Uh, she worked at the phone company since she was like 16 years old. It was a job that she got when she was in high school. And and, uh, and she just stayed there and rose through the ranks and did all kinds of stuff. And just like scratching and surviving in corporate America and being this like black woman. You know, she held positions that no other woman held in the company at that point. But at any rate, so she she had this idea that she wanted to be able to call home and get uh, contacts and so the idea was like, I wish, like, we have uh, answering machines, but the answering machine won't give me the contact of the people that called. Mm -hmm. I wish I could call call home and have this mobile, this like mobile database of like numbers, like a mobile phone book. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't know the, t the technical, she didn't have the technical um, uh, um, jargon of how it would like, you know, how it would work out. Mm -hmm. But she had the idea. She had this idea. And, the, and the, the idea was that there would be a central uh, database 
with all of your contact information that you could call and retrieve contact info from. Now, keep in mind, people at this point still have answering machines. Right. They still have voicemail hasn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and she goes to the company and somebody's like, Pam, this is a great idea. You, know, you, should, you, you should do something with this. You should patent this. And uh, she patents it. And uh, I think R&D people help her out with it. And she comes up with this thing, this, 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 this idea. And the idea was that you should be able to be at any location and call home. And the company's like, we like this a lot. <laughs> a lot, a lot. <laughs> like this a lot, a lot, you know. And uh, they take this, this, this idea and this patent and they like give her like a little piddling amount of money for it. Because if you work for a giant company, anything that you create on, on the, while working for them belongs to them you know mm-hmm. and you usually mm-hmm. sign a clause that you know that uh, in, that that says that so uh, next thing you know they kind of they invent this this voicemail thing my mom's like that's totally my thing but it's just like flipped you know what I mean like it was like a, a weird thing she was like you know wow wow that's really it's kind of crazy and so now every time I use voicemail I'm like thanks mom <laughs> thanks mom but you can look up her patent does, does she go about saying like, "Do you know I invented voicemail"? You know, it's hyper. Just, it's just, hyper so you, just so you know, I, it's it's hyper. It's hyperbolic to say she invented voicemail, but I like to say that anyway because yeah. I'm always like, "My mom invented voicemail." God damn it, you know. <laughs> but she definitely had. Uh, there was definitely, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a coincidence. Yeah, you know. Yeah. It's and, unfortunately yeah. she doesn't sit on the voice, voicemail riches as a reason. Right, exactly. Sitting on a pile of voicemail Ex- money. Exactly, you know, exactly, it. exactly. Just rolling in a bathtub full of voicemail loot. You got that voicemail money. Mm. Mm. But it's okay. It was all right. She it, it turned out all right. My mom is my mom's doing okay. The yeah. Mount Airy was was a racially diverse. Why why do you think that it worked so well there? Because as you pointed out, Philadelphia was a very or yeah. is really mm-hmm. a very segregated city. So why do you think that there's one sort of microcosm? There's a success, and the rest of the city there's a lot of friction. I think because it has all of the attributes that everybody wants. It, it has houses that you could afford. It had housing and apartments and things and affordable housing for those that didn't have you know a lot of means. But it also you could get a giant house with trees and land, mm-hmm. you know, as well if you had the money for that. So. I think that someone who didn't want to live directly in the city, um, which, I, you know, which I'd imagine, you know, lots of like those that were affluent and had money to afford to live in Center City. Um, if you didn't want to deal with that, why not get a, get a place in the burbs? Oh, not the burbs, as we established, it is very much the city. But um, why not get a place where you could still have all of the attributes of the suburbs without actually leaving the city. Mm -hmm. And so everyone kind of converged on it. And um, I think that that's, I don't know. I don't really know. know? I think that I imagine that that was the, the probably something, but also there were like some clear like lines, you know, there were clear lines. I, 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 because my neighborhood was mostly black. And the area that I was in was mostly black working class families. Mm-hmm. And there were like middle class and some people that were like, you know, there was, there was, there, I mean, like three blocks from me was dog, like we called it dog town um, in areas of like Chew Avenue where it was just like, you could go up there and some, some shit will be jumping off, you know, mm-hmm. some shit will be popping. But, but, um, 
But on the same note, I could also go to my friend's house who lived maybe five blocks from me that was like the Huxtables, you know? So, ooh, bad time, bad, ugh, bad, bad reference. <laughs> what was this, going on point. in that house? And that <laughs> A lot of sleeping and curious behavior. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> you leave Cliff Huxtable out of this. <laughs> Did you find that personally affecting when you found that out? Um... No, but I was. It was interesting. I thought. I thought it was really interesting. I. I, I was very. Uh, I. I definitely was like, oh man, that's. Because did you watch that the, the HBO special or it wasn't maybe it wasn't made for HBO? But the thing that was like Bill Cosby himself from you know back in the early eighties. Yeah. I used to run all the time on there. I mm-hmm. remember as a kid, I just yeah, see that and over Bill Cosby and over himself again. was great. Yeah, I mean, he was. I, none of the, it doesn't change the fact that he was a brilliant and amazing comedian. The fact that he was like this troubled, messed up like a uh, sick person who had yeah. some really sad proclivities you know really fucked up proclivities yeah, that's to say the least to say the, to say <laughs> yeah, the least yeah, like yeah, yeah i try i mean i mean one thing that i've learned in the past few years in terms of just like once i started getting involved in like working with um like at-risk kids and people that are troubled is that i try to like like obviously have uh err on the side of victims of stuff but uh the people that perpetrate this stuff generally aren't well-adjusted people they're sick they need help you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so i thought that the whole thing was super sad i was like that sucks i it's awful for these women that had to to be subjected to this Uh, and and it's awful to be bill cosby to be like this sick motherfucker that does this sad shitty stuff you know Mm -hmm. what i mean so um but that being said uh there was there's also a part of me that um, was ensconced in the salacious nature of all of it. I was just like, oh shit, yeah, Mister, pull your pants up, black man. Is what, you know, like fuck, like fuck you, Bill Cosby. You know, and um, Mister Victim Blamer over here, motherfucking, um, you know, had all kinds of shit to say about about uh, black people and, and America in general. Oh, he'll have a lot to say about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a ton of shit to yeah. say, but he, but he, but but then that shit came out, and it was just kind of like oh, yeah. Somehow man. I think that like droopy pants is not nearly as bad as raping someone that you've drugged. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and um, and the uh, it was it was it was it was rough. The other thing that really struck me and that was kind of crazy was was Black America's um unwillingness to accept it like people were like no this is a conspiracy they were coming out i was like no man this shit is the shit it's what it is you know what i mean like like sometimes we get like no he's not fucking you know like like what was the uh the boondocks with r kelly episode like (laughs) every nigga that's in court is not nelson mandela you know what i mean like he's not he's not fucking you know he's not being persecuted you know what i mean this is the fucking bill cosby was doing just fine you Mm -hmm. know and what did these poor women have to gain from being like something awful happened to me and subjecting themselves to that anyway um I feel like we went off on a tangent. And back to Mount Airy. Mount Airy. Well, well, coming back to Mount Airy now, I mean, mm-hmm. you've been in other places. Uh-huh. Do you think that the, the neighborhood has changed significantly from when you were living there? Honestly, no, not really. And I, I really, I kind of appreciate that. I mean, there's, there's, some, there's been some changes, without a doubt. My grade school, uh, I went to St. Therese across the street from my house. And who like, all was going to that school? Was this nobody a, that I, no one that I associated. No, I well, I mean, more like in terms of oh, just people in race. And, I mean, is it, it was just it a bunch mixed, of black kids. It was okay. all black. So it was, a it was all black, black school. And it was uh, a Catholic school. It was a Catholic school. It was all right. black school. All all black school. All white staff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, no, that's not true. Because I had Miss Jackson, who was great and looked like uh, she looked like Gladys Knight. And then there was another woman named Miss Jackson 
who I think was kind of like, now in retrospect, thinking about it, I think she was kind of like a subversive kind of like interesting person mm-hmm. that like I wish I could have like, I wish I was who I am now so I could be like, tell me more, Michelle. let's talk, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But <clears throat> And I feel like she recognized the like kind of spark of dissonant in me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and was like, mm. Yeah, but at any rate, um, yeah, it was a it was a Catholic school. It was most it was all black, um, and it was it was cool. I had some child childhood sucked. Like I don't I like I don't. I think childhood was is childhood sucks. I, I you you mean was, in general? Or yeah, in general, in general. Yeah. So when I think about stuff like grade school, and I think about like I'm like, well, there was some really awesome aspects that I could look at and be like, oh, that was awesome. But by and large, the whole picture just sucked. Mm-hmm. I was like, this sucks. Being a kid sucks. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you fit into the the scheme over there? I mean, what what were what were your interests or who were you moving with in, well, in this, those young years? Well, this is interesting because, like I said, I moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. So I went from living. Well, first we were in. Uh, my earliest memories of school were South Philly. I lived in South Philly, and I went to St. Rita's. I had it, you. Your family couldn't afford to send you to to a private school. Um, they would send you to Catholic school because mm-hmm. it was like you know the Catholic. The, the, you know you could go to church and wear a uniform and feel like they felt like you were getting some sort of thing. But what they failed to realize is no matter what you put on, you're still in South Philly, which at the time was not. You know, it wasn't some like. It wasn't the like micro brew and artisanal mayonnaise <laughs> place that it's turning into, but yeah. <clears throat> um, my but I went to Catholic school and it was a, a a a mixed. It was like Italian and black and a little bit of everything, but everyone stayed to themselves. And I had these memories of fighting these kids all the time when I was um, in in this school in South, at St. Rita's. We leave. My parents split up. I wound up going to another school. This school was in Mount Airy, um, but we lived in South Philly. Uh, then we moved to uh, Oak Lane. And we lived while we were living. Anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. I'm going to make this longer than it needs to be, so I'm going to try to edit it. <laughs> uh, but in terms of who I was moving with, we wound up, my, my mom and I ended up mo- moving to Southwest Philly. Mm-hmm. And then I went to an all-white school. I was one of three black kids in this school. Mm-hmm. Now... While it was a like a hellacious experience, because once again, living in racially segregated Philadelphia and in a notoriously racist ass city, being one of three black kids in an all white school is not a pretty not a pretty picture. I had a nun who told me she insisted that I loved Mr. T and was like, you want to be like Mr. T? It's okay to be like Mr. T, but you have to learn how to read. And I was like, what? I read fine. I read it like a. I was like, I'm in like third grade. I read at like a sixth grade level. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I lo- like, what are you talking about? Was it about? all the gold chains you were wearing? Yeah, it, was, it might have been my mohawk. I, might have been like, I was like, I ain't getting in no classroom, Murdoch. <laughs> you know, uh, um, that being said, I was Mr. T for this past Halloween. <laughs> um, working, out some, working out some childhood scars. Yeah, you'll get there, man. You'll yeah, get there. I'll get there, I'll get there one day. You. I'll get there one day. So she, she, was, she insisted that. And she was also like, you're going to be like that basketball player who can't read. If you don't behave yourself. And she would just say super racist, fucked up shit to me all the time. And I had another teacher that would always like single me out for stuff that like white kids would do. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. But um, but it was a, you know, they they did not hesitate to let you know that you were the one of three black kids in this <laughs> right. white school. Um, and it also kind of nurtured a kind of um, like aggro nature in me in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was always down to fight 
part of that was also like just me being a Philadelphian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that went on well into high school, and I was always down to fight. If so this one of causing you know, troubles. I mean, did you wind up getting in any kind of serious trouble from that? Or did well, there, there was <laughs> funny story. Funny story about the about yes, the, about, 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 <laughs> I got a funny story, Murdoch. <laughs> Listen up, fool. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't got time for your jibba jabba. For the whole interview. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 uh, uh, my uh, the, the other thing that's worth noting is that my father and my mother were split up and living in two separate areas, and I would go back to the our old neighborhood, which uh, and hang out with with my dad and hang out with all these these black kids, and then I would go back to this Southwest Philly suburb, uh, not suburb, but it was go back to Southwest Philly. And I'd be surrounded by these white kids. So when I, my friend, a friend of mine from my old neighborhood came to, to, to visit me at my mom's house. And we're hanging out. And uh, my mom had a jar of vitamins. Mm-hmm. A jar of vitamins. And they had V's on them. Little V's on them. Little red V's on them. And this kid, his, his older brother was kind of like a thug. You know, his, little, his older brother was, uh, drove a Mustang. And he was, he was cool. Charlie was cool. I remember Charlie. But anyway... We're hanging out, and I have this jar of orange vitamins, and he goes, what are these? I was like, these are uh, uh, vitamins? And he goes, they look like V's. And I was like, what's a V? And at the time, he's like, V's. Uh, volumes. And I was like, what's a volume? And he was like, you know, the white kids take them. It's drugs. You know, volumes. Like, and what he meant was value. Value. It's volume. And he was like, the white kids take them. You and me should sell these to these white kids <laughs> out here and make some money. And I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and so I go, I set off to school the next day with like a handful of orange vitamins mm-hmm. prepared to sell the, sell these, these handful of volumes to these white kids. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yo, you want to buy some volumes? Yo, you want to buy some volumes? Yo, you want to buy some volumes? And kids are like, what? I, they don't, we're, we're in like fucking, you know, third, fourth grade. They don't know what the fuck this shit yeah. is. And, um, this kid, Glenn, he comes to me. He's hanging out. He's hanging out. I'm like, Glenn, you want to buy some volumes? And he's like, no. I think I actually sold two or three of them, maybe. Two or three of them. I had, I had like and a, I'm sure that got stoned off. I had like too. a whopping, I had like a whopping like two like dollar off of it or something, you know. Um, but the next day, the kid Glenn goes home to his parents and is like, what's a volume? And his parents are like, what are you talking about? And they're like they're like orange pills. The little black kid in my class tried to sell me these pills, uh-huh. and so needless to say, uh, they already they were already had it fucking hard on for me as it was anyway. Yeah. And this nun takes me out in the hallway and sh- literally strip searches me to try to find stuff. And I was totally I was I was so fucking like I was so I was too fucking um, happy. Too, I was too smug knowing that I had nothing on me. I was like, I don't touch no weight. I ain't got that shit. I'll get my hands dirty. You know, like, like I was too smug to recognize the humiliation of being taken out and being in the fourth grade and being taken out in the hallway and stripped down to your underwear. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. To, 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 to really, you know, you know, but these were the sort of things that happened all the time. Anyway, she stripped me down in my underwear. I had nothing on me. She was like, oh, you were so, if I had, oh, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. I was like, ain't got time for your jibber jabber, fool. Mur- <laughs> Murdoch, get me out of here. I ain't getting on no plane, you know. And she, she uh, they then uh, made me sit in a chair at the end of the hallway 
uh, in front of the principal's office so that everyone would walk by me and look at me and be like, there's the little black kid. Look at him. He did something. He's in he's in jail. You know, did they know that you were selling drugs? That that, that was your uh, uh, I don't crime. know if that was my... I didn't know if they knew that was my crime, but it, it just got to the point where I was just like, I don't give a shit anymore. And I retreated into myself. Like I was, I was, an, I was the only child, so I had to entertain myself all the time. And that's kind of what the... the, the um, I kind of had this like real big escapist thing jumping off where I was interested in like I always loved like like I was raised I love cartoons mm-hmm. and I love the you know and, and it made me start doing artwork and drawing and doing you know uh, particularly old Japanese cartoons at the time were fucking great. You watching the Star Blazers? Oh my god, that you yeah. man, <laughs> Star yeah. Blazers! I attribute Star Blazers. It's so important. That, that cartoon was so important to me. Um, any of the true geeks out there that are listening will recognize it as uh, uh, Spaceship Yamato. Yeah, uh-huh. um, uh, Be forever. Yeah, exactly. 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 I, I loved it so much. It, it blew my mind because it was dark and it was bleak and it, and it, and it, it had... Um, and it was beautiful. And, and I was, as a kid, was exposed to a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been so I had a pretty, um, I had a pretty good like take on a, the emotional range. You know, like I kind of I understood the, the the this complex stuff, but no other cartoons were offering like themes of death and romance and, and all the things that you would see in these. Yeah, it was operating on a pretty cartoons. epic scale. Right, it was right. a long form right. story. Right, and it was great. And uh, and um and I love it. And then Robotech came along. Mm-hmm. But these things, so I had this fantasy of taking off in the Yamato. When I saw that cartoon, I was like, I'm going to build that ship. I'm going to build it. I'm going to take off into space with all my friends. And uh, I'm going to, you know, get in adventures and do all this stuff. So I started doing artwork. And it really kind of changed the trajectory of of my life in general. Like it made me want to like I started to seek out create creative things, and as a result of seeking out creative things, it then I think it, as an artist, I think you start to like ask uncomfortable questions and you start pulling back the veil and stuff. And I mm-hmm. think that 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 cartoon combined with my upbringing and this uh, being in this kind of shitty environment led me to get become more like internal and mm-hmm. figure out how to my own ways of escape and that is what took me down this path of of creativity which ultimately and and a desire for expression authentic expression that eventually led me to punk rock mm-hmm. um so when i was in this white school i let we left we eventually moved out of that neighborhood and we moved to mount airy and then i go to this school for the black kids and i'm just like all right i'm relieved to see a bunch of people that look like me mm-hmm. and relieved to see people that look like people in my family you know what i mean mm-hmm. and and um uh, my, my cousin actually went to the same school as me and it was it was cool. I'm thinking I was nervous about it, but it was cool. But the problem was that I wasn't operating in the same way that they were. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you talk white and you do this, that is no. So then, then there's this other, this, the pendulum swinging the other way. Right. And it, this just makes this thing where once again, I don't fit in anywhere. I don't fit in any specific place. I don't have a pocket. And, and while that sucks as a kid, um, I appreciate what it fostered in me because I think that that is the essence of, of, of um, 
kind of punk and the DIY ethic and the idea of. Um, I remember watching an interview with um, with uh, with Ian Mackay, and he said something about. Um, he said something to the extent of punk is this free space because there's no audience for new ideas, and that really resonated with me because as a kid, I. I operated in this place that there was no audience for any of my ideas mm -hmm. because I came from a school full of black kids. I mean, school. Full, I came from a black neighborhood to an all-white neighborhood to hang out with a bunch of people that didn't accept me in either. Mm -hmm. And then going back to a black neighborhood, no one accepted me there. Right. So I'm this this person that's just like I'm in this space. It doesn't. I can just be whatever the fuck I want to be because it doesn't matter. I can see that being liberating. Is it also a lonely place? Oh, it's a very lonely yeah. place, and it was. It also it was. It was a lonely place. It was also an aggressive place. Because I was also like, I'll fight, this. I'll fight you. I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like, like I came to the school and these kids would be like, "You talk white." I was, like, yeah, but I fight. You want me to fight black? Is that what you want? Is that what the fuck you want? Because you know. And so I would just like, I had no problem with just like, because when people pick on you and fuck with you all the time, like you have, you gotta do something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so there was this aggressive, uh, this aggressive aspect of things, um, and there were other aspects of like my my like family life and just my life in general that kind of fostered that as well. Um, uh, but uh, but eventually, I, I came into... Um, I kind of came into my own... I, I just... I, I was... I came into my own. I came in... I discovered who I was. You know, I figured out... I, I discovered who I was. Um, it was... I don't... I don't remember what it was that made... Oh. The movie Rad. Rad, yeah. The that... movie Rad. Uh -huh. So there was like Star Blazers, Rad. There's these, these little things, these little like horny things from like the 80s. Right. And Rad was the bike. Uh... Yeah, it was a freestyle yeah. biking movie. Yeah. The, these were the, th these little things were like pinpoints, mm -hmm. and, uh, little notes in my, in my life, in my journey in general that kind of led up to me being over there. But there's some things that are specifically, and this was one of them. I saw the movie Rad. Don't know what it was. I guess it's because I just felt this freedom when I was out and about riding my bicycle. I didn't give a shit about anybody. I didn't care mm -hmm. about what was going on. Like, I could just be out riding my bicycle. I saw the movie Rad, and I see all these kids doing tricks and doing all this crazy stuff. And I was like, this is cool. This is so cool. That's the thing you can do. Mm -hmm. Like, this is great. So I become obsessed with, like, freestyle BMX. And so I start getting into freestyle BMX. Once again, nobody, everybody in my neighborhood, like... Also, that's a white kid thing. That's some rich white kid shit. You know what yeah. I mean? Like these fucking expensive ass bikes and stuff. And my mom, and my mom ain't got that voicemail money. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, but I, I'm, I'm working my way through these things and I, and, and I, I, I get really into it. And my, I remember riding around with my best friend at the time, Darnell. And we, we were like, we would venture. We're looking around for like, Things to jump on and things to like, you know, you know, we're all, ride our bikes and do tricks and and we ride out to like farther uh, towards Chestnut Hill than we'd ever gone, mm -hmm. and we wind up on this block, and there's these white kids and they have a ramp, mm -hmm. and we were like, what the fuck, this is crazy. These kids have a ramp, you know. I was like, this is amazing. And there's this kid, uh, his name was Matt, Matt Griffin. And uh, he had this gorgeous blue, and it was like I was like, "That's a real freestyle bike. That's a real one." Like mine was like some some bullshit, you know. And Are you doing endos in a hoopty? Yeah, I was. I was yeah. like, I was like, oh, you know, on this like huffy that I'm gonna break in a week, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I see this kid and his friends, and they're riding around, 
and on on in his in his driveway they had like a little kick turn ramp mm-hmm. and they're doing tricks and we were just like sitting there watching we're like whoa this is crazy and the kids got a bike and on the side of the bike is a sticker that says the sex pistols mm-hmm. and i was like what is a sex pistol this is all this is crazy <laughs> like my mind was blown instantly you mm-hmm. know what i mean my mind was fucking blown instantly and so I, I, I you know after seeing this kid uh we prefer i you know i befriend this kid and he was a fucking hot mess he was a hot mess i would like go in a house i'd go over his house occasionally going um and he would i would listen to him talk to his parents and they'd be like man can you come in and just and he'd be like what the fuck do you want like what the fu- fucking fuck you like and i'd be like what yeah. i was like this is i was like you living in another world i think i would get like a syllable out before somebody punched me yeah, in the mouth I, talking I that shit talking to my it, parents yeah. like that you crazy yeah. i was like this kid is a rebel i was like this kid's a total rebel i was like i had never met that kind of like just i didn't know that that was a thing that kids could do oh mm. another thing is because i was like a tv culture person when i was a little kid i watched anything that had like a little kid in it especially a little black kid if it had little kids doing stuff i was like that's awesome like i always look for like you know uh, you watching the little rascals i did yeah, i did yeah, and yeah. then and, and, and they were i remember there were I, I actually as 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 like crazy and fucked up as characters like buckwheat and farina were <laughs> um uh it was still i loved it because there were little kids doing stuff you know like i loved it anytime there was little kids doing anything especially if it was like adventure or they were like you know kind of and so um, I guess it's because when you're isolated and you see like a, like a group of kids in the community, you know, doing stuff and you find something to, to get into. So I was just like, I was right, ripe for punk. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I was just kind of looking for a community and having a, a sense of camaraderie with some other people around other disenfranchised people. And I met this kid and he was actually really, in retrospect, he was actually kind of a jerk mm-hmm. and clearly a troubled kid. And he was, a, he liked... He was like, you can hang out, but your friend can't. Because Darnell was just like some kid from the hood, you know what I mean? Who was like my best friend. He was like, fuck that kid. But at any rate, um, there were other other things at play there, obviously. But I hang out with this kid, and he starts, and he like gives me some mixtapes, and and this kind of sowed the seeds of. So what know. you must remember, like, what were the the things that were on the mixtape? Oh, like, dude, what band dude. Did uh, there was Dead Milkman. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Dead Kennedys. It was all about dead, dead, dead. dead. The dead Kennedys, the dead milkman. There were no sex whistle songs on the on the mixtape, but dead milkman, dead Kennedys, suicidal tendencies, which was my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I was the first time I heard institutionalized. I was like, this is amazing. This is this is crazy. This is absolutely nuts. You know, this is bananas. Um, And. It blew my mind. And I just wore this tape out. I just played it over and over and over and over and over again. And I would be like, I got to find more stuff like this. Uh, eventually, Matt moved away because I think he had, like, got sent to, like, rehab or something. And he was like, I don't, I don't know what the deal is. But you ever I, hear from him again? Or no. I've never seen the kid again. Never saw him ever again. But I, I then, you know, years pass and I wind up in, I start skateboarding. And when you start skateboarding, that's when you really, like, because in the 80s, skating was punk. No, it was yeah, fucking yeah. punk, you know. And then I'm reading Thrasher, and I'm hearing all about all these bands and stuff. And it was great. It was, those were that, that, those were times when I really, I was really stoked because I I um I discovered something. 
that spoke to me. And I think that that's imperative for anybody. I think that that's really imperative. I think that's really helpful. Um, when it, you know, uh, to go off on a tangent for a second, when, when working with the at risk with the with kids in, in Chicago and working with anybody, um, and just watching, observing people in my life in general, and seeing people in certain situations, I think that if you find things that animate you mm-hmm. and things that inspire you, um, that it becomes if you find something to love, uh something to go for then it makes you kind of bulletproof because you're kind of you can't be like you know it's i mean environment always supersedes intention but at least you have an intention so when i found this thing when i discovered like skateboarding and punk rock and all these things like the other shit that everybody else was around me was getting into was not interesting to me Mm -hmm. the like everybody else was like sports and girls and cars and fucking drugs and guns and fucking all this crazy stuff um I am granted that everyone eventually just kind of accepted me as being like, oh, that's Ralph. He's the weird black kid. Don't fuck with him. <laughs> He's the weirdo. It's good that you have that to your advantage, that you know yeah. you have size and the ability to fight, right, so you're right. not going to get fucked right, right, much. Right, you know, other, right. Other people are not going to have that Well, back then, I mean, people did. People would test me every once in a while, you know, and, and I would lose sometimes, too, but, but, but it was like, but by and large, uh, people would be like, they just accepted me. As being like he weird, but he one of us. He's just weird, like you know, like you know. uh, mm. And uh, and by that time, I was I was actually just kind of like I kind of confident. I knew what I liked and knew who I was, you know, what I was into. Um, But these that was a great time because that time I was becoming a teenager and I was getting into all the shit that I didn't and I had something to be excited about. I wind up going to high school. Um, have you ever met? Do you know Jamie Mann? I'm not, I'm not certain. Jamie Mann. He was in a band called Invid back in the day. Anyway, I, I remember. Uh, you know, I think I do know who you're talking about. But I, it's been a Jamie, many, Jamie, many years. Jamie Mann. Um, Jamie Mann. Tom McCarthy. Um, who else? Uh, Tom McCarthy. Jamie Mann. It was a guy named Booker. And and, and his brother Ian. Okay, so I wind up graduating from grade school or middle school, and I go to high school. And I wind up in high school. I befriend some other kids that are like, like skaters. One of my like oldest friends, my friend Chooch, he actually lives very pretty close to here. My friend Chooch, he he's like young skateboarder, same age as me. We met in religion class and mm-hmm. uh, at Cardinal Doherty High School because <laughs> he had like a, a like Bones Brigade, like drawn like a Bones Brigade thing. And at that time, it was just such an instant peer identifier because before. Uh, everyone had access to everything via the internet. If you saw someone that was into stuff, yeah, stickers like, and T-shirts were, were really just, important. It was way of really important, yeah, yeah. super important, yeah. super important. Like it's much more like now. If I see somebody with a fucking misfit shirt on now, I'm like I don't give a shit. But but um, but back then, if you babies saw someone, have misfit shirts now, People yeah, exactly, baby, exactly, exactly. Grandma likes the Ramones, or exactly. doesn't actually like them, but she likes the T-shirt, right? Exactly, like the, yeah, exactly. So so back then, when you had these these instant peer identifiers, yeah, it was just like we were like, oh shit, yeah, I you're might one not of even us. know you want to. Yeah. There was a there was like a kid who was like a white power skinhead in my school, and I was still like, he's in my my world. This kid is in my world. Like we won't get along, but he's like. He's a freak. We were yeah. the freaks. Mm-hmm. We were relegated to the freak, especially when you were to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. So it was crazy. It was crazy. It was crazy, Joe, because there were so many like um, interesting um, things 
that like this pendulum swinging back and forth in terms of experience uh it would be like some profoundly shitty experience that swung back to me that would have either eventually down the road swing back to me being like a person being a person who i am and being crafting my identity in some positive way mm -hmm. um because you go to catholic school catholic school is kind of oppressive and shitty and weird but and they make wear uniforms and stuff, but the camaraderie that you form with other people that find ways of uh, rebelling mm -hmm. is was was crazy. The bonds that you form with them, you know, it was nuts. So at any rate, I'm in high school. We sit at a lunch table, my, my best friend Chooch and I and a couple other kids. We are basically like the weird little like poser punk kids. Like we just skaters that just don't, you know, we just read about things in magazines. Yeah. We don't know shit about shit. There's a table that's like five tables over from us in the cafeteria, and they're older kids. And they're all like, well, the one kid's got like a fucking leather jacket with like the Crumb Suckers album cover yeah, on it yeah. and a, DR, a DRI thing on it and like fucking, you know, the Misfit shit and the Sam Haynes skull and like all this stuff. And he's and his hair is dyed like purple, but he has it wrapped up and bobby pinned to the top and kind of tucked in. Mm -hmm. and he has like a devil lock, like a Misfit's devil lock, you know. And the kid's got like, but he also had like, I see him walking down the hall, he's got like graffiti on his fucking... On on his uh, notebooks and stuff, so he can get away with this in Catholic school. I mean, there's enough. He no, he he would wear his uniform. He would do the stuff like your hair is not allowed to be below your collar. Mm -hmm. Your hair is not allowed to really be dyed colors. But they didn't really say anything about that in the in the rule book. So he's got it coiled up. He's yeah. got like a devil. He's got it coiled up and bobby pinned to the right. top, and it's dyed like purple. Now you can see it, you know. And he sits at a table with this other kid who's got bleach blonde dreadlocks. Oh, he's got bleach blonde hair. And he looks like a, you know, he looks crazy, you know what I mean? And then there's the other kid who I saw who's in the band, in the school band, who plays guitar and wears, uh, wears like the union boots and the fucking, like, you know, like just like a fucking, you know, um, and leather jackets and stuff, and him and his brother. And I was like, those kids are the real deal. You mm -hmm. know, those kids are the real fucking deal, you know? Um, and keep in mind the other thing that's interesting is keep in mind i still have this parallel world that's just like growing up with, a, with my friends you know my family my friends and family that have nothing to do with this mm -hmm. you know what i mean and they're just always like you're just weird ralph anyway so these kids are the real deal these kids are real punks as far as we're concerned and one day i come to school and it's a snow day and the vet and the school is closed but the vestibule is open so I go in the vestibule to stay warm, and I, we're just trying to decide whether or not we're going to go into school or not. And it's just me by myself, and the kid with the leather jacket comes in, mm -hmm. and he's just standing there, and he's like, hey, what's up, man? What's up? And I'm, I'm a freshman. This kid's like a, a junior or something, you know? And I was like, whoa, uh, hi. You know, I'm like, I'm Ralph. He's like, I'm Jamie, and it was Jamie Mann. And... That is another point in my life that shifted the, the like mm -hmm. trajectory of my life, because... That kid was, at that point, probably the coolest person I had ever met in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And he and I, we hang out, and Jamie's just like, uh, he's like, yeah, man, what's up? You know, he's like, oh, cool. And we're talking, and I was like, so, uh, uh, you you like the Misfits? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, he's like, what? You like the Misfits? You know? And it, and, and, and I'm sure that this is blowing his mind because I'm like this black kid, and he lives in Northeast Philly. Like mm -hmm. you want to talk about being like racially segregated? You know what I mean? Like yeah. he lives in Northeast Philly. And 
he's probably like he's blown away by the fact that there's this this young this this young black kid that's just interested in this this stuff and all the logo and stuff. And I was like, that's cool, man. And we get to talking, and he's just like, yeah, come, you know what? Come hang out with us at some point. And then uh, later on in the week, church. <laughs> Later on in the week, I come down. We come down to study hall, and me and Chooch and all the other guys at our table. And I'm like, "This, hey guys, uh, I'd like to stick around, but I gotta go over there." And so, <laughs> <What a dick. laughs> so I go over and I sit down with Jamie. He's like, "This is Tom, Tom McCarthy, and this is a, a Booker and Ian." Hey guys, this is Ralph. You know, and I was like, "Hey, what's up, guys?" And they were like talking about the show that week, and they were like, "Yeah, we were at the show and fucking crazy and blah blah blah." And Tom's like, "Check out my fanzine that I made and blah blah blah." You know, and I was like, "This my it was just like a flood. The floodgates of stuff mm-hmm. just opened up." At that moment, and we end up becoming really good friends. You know, I mean, we become really good friends, and then Jamie and then they start making me mixtapes and shit. Um, I don't know whatever uh, like Booker and Ian. I never, I was never really close to, but but Tom and Jamie would would make me mixtapes and things, and it was just to have the raddest shit on it. And it was also at the time the be- as far as I'm concerned, the best time. Um, I'm gonna say, cause, cause I mean, ultimately, I think I, you know, and I, I'll get into it later, but I think that like punk rock is done. It's not. It's done. It's it's dead. It's not. It's a. It doesn't exist anymore. It can't because it, there's, whatever. Um, but I think that this was probably the like second to last wave mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the like, generational wave, to of being like, yeah, this is cool. This is a new, and exciting thing. You know what I mean? But. So who who was on these tapes? Like who? who are you oh, dude! Oh, yeah, because it was yeah. the best era. Like it was like um, um, there was uh, Minor Threat, Token Entry. I remember the mixtape. The first tape that, that Jamie gave me had Sam Hain, The Misfits, uh, Christian Death. I was way into Christian Death. Uh, Christian Death, Christ on a Crutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, no. Christian Death and um, what the fuck was the other? Christ man. Oh, there's Christ on Parade. Christ on Parade. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, Christ yeah, on Parade. Yeah, oh my god. Yeah, I that's, loved that's, Christ on Parade. That's, that's that really was like my first yeah. like this was like my first real mix, you know. So mm-hmm. I've got like the tapes from Matt Griffin, I got the tapes from fucking Jamie Man. I got like the Christ on Parade. Um not Christ on the Crest. That came later. That was I, I was well into it back then. But mm-hmm. but uh Christ on Parade, um Sam Hain, um bunch of other crazy stuff. Like it was uh I feel like there might have been some like Op Ivy on there too. Then no, then Tom made the mixtape that had Op Ivy on it. Dag Nasty. Um uh a verbal assault. Mm-hmm. Verbal assault. Verbal assault. Um and and the bad brains. And then the bad brains. The Bad Brains was another, like, it threw me for a loop. Did it you was, know that there was an all-black hardcore band I had prior no to it? Yeah, so that's got to be, like, the lightning bolt on the cover. I had no, exactly, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. There, I had no idea. So if there was any, like, solidifying me in this world of, uh, you know, any, like, kind of thing that made me in this, the world of punk, and then and, and thing that just made me be like, oh, hell yeah. Like, I'm going to listen to this mixtape that Tom made me. And then I'm hearing this, this song, he's like, you know, like all this fucking shit, he's fucking great. And then next thing was like, doom, 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 doom. And I was like, wait, what is, what's, what the fuck is this? Wait. 
what about the, but the Bad Brains? But this is supposed to be the Bad Brains. I was like, mm-hmm. this is a reggae band. Like, this is crazy. And I was like, okay, okay, that's cool. This is reggae. This is cool. This is interesting, you know? And uh, uh, and I was like, wow, I got to go get more of this band. I got to, because it was my favorite cuts on this mixtape. And I run down, at the time, Tower Records existed. I won around. one on town. South Street? Yeah, I won yeah, on South yeah. Street. And I would be hanging out. Something. And then there was a whole nother scene jumping off down there. Because it was like skinheads and clubs and bars. You know, all this crazy shit happening. Um, and punk rockers and all this, you know, South Street was still a thing yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, and I went and I bought the, um, I bought, I again, no, first I bought uh, the Royer tapes, the band of DC. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is great. This is phenomenal. And they had all these reggae songs. I was like, it's so cool. These guys play reggae and they do it so well, you know. Then I pick up I Against Sign. I see these black dudes on the cover. Oh, and I look at the picture and I was like, this is amazing. These dudes look like they look like they could be related to me. This is fucking <laughs> awesome, you know? Like, this is crazy. And and that was it. I was full on. I was in, you know? Mm-hmm. And then Jamie started taking... We started going to shows at Revival. Um, I'll never forget my first show. I yeah, that's what I was going to ask. First show was, first was uh, the Serial Killers, Breakdown, um, Scab Cadillac, and I think that was it. But Breakdown didn't show up. Because they they got like they like I think I was at that show. Yeah, Uh, yeah, it was at Revival. mm -hmm. It was Revival. Breakdown didn't show up, and everybody kept making a joke that Breakdown broke down. (laughs) And I remember it just being like, "What did you think of the serial killers when you saw them?" I'm sure they made. Oh, they were they were they were crazy. It was I was like, "This is a weird world. I love this. This is fuck." Like I felt so, like for lack of, I mean, I just felt free. Like, you know, once again, uh, going back to that idea of this free space, like there's just so much expression and craziness and people were so fucking crazy. Like I was like, people in my neighborhood think I'm a fucking freak and people in school think I'm crazy. Like this world, everyone's crazy. I was like, we're all welcome. You know, it was this unifying thing. Um, Were you seeing any other black kids at the shows when you first started going? That's another thing that was great about that time was that that scene while everyone that I had met at that point, it was a very like kind of it was a very white thing. There were tons of black kids at, at the revival. There was tons. Like like like, it felt like, um, I, it felt like like what I'd imagine New York looking like in the late like late seventies. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like where you'd have like the punk rockers coming to like the fucking block parties and sh- you know what I mean? And this culture of this mismatch of stuff. Um, and it was it was awesome. It was awesome. It was really awesome. There was a lot of there was actually a lot of black kids, and they were like, you know, while, and there were people in the bands too, because 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 I don't know if you remember, um, uh, Scab Cadillac, I think it was. There was a I think the guitar player was a black dude. Yeah, I don't remember. Awesome. I know I saw them, but I don't remember what they looked yeah. like. But the, I think like, FOD played too. Which FOD always played. They played like every week and still do. <laughs> still they, do they really? They still exist. Yeah, oh, and they're still great. Awesome. Like they never that's they never awesome. went in a bad direction. They're always that's consistently awesome. great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it was it was it was really it was cool. It was super cool. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about the Philly scene is sometimes Mm -hmm. when I see these documentaries and people talk about how it was a largely white scene, it was never my experience and clearly not yours is that there was always, you know, Philadelphia was always really mixed and it just wasn't a question and it was more of a surprise for me to hear later on that it was something that was... That's really, that's really funny because I was, that was something that I was about to tell you. I was going to, I was going to, I was going to say it because I, um, like I said, I feel like there are these waves 
in punk rock these these kind of generations of of uh, of the, the the kind of changing of the guard as it were and I think that I was probably in in this I would say the second to the last like substantive changing of the guard and then the 90s popped off towards the middle the middle then after that was like Nirvana came about and labels were like oh weird weirdos can make us money like mm-hmm. you know and they start snatching up things and then friends of mine that are in bands and shit are getting like major label contracts and all this crazy mm-hmm. stuff but eventually this all this all led to me joining a band um well i don't even know where to start while it's still fresh in my brain the the idea there was a point in the late 90s where you were, where I would go to a show and I would look around and I would just be like, it's just all white people. This is all white dudes. Mm-hmm. This is just white dudes. And something in me shifted that was like, I'm not, this is weird. I don't, I don't know what this is all about. Like it was as if it was just like, I was like, You're, this is supposed to be the free space, but the free space doesn't feel very free to me. It doesn't feel very inclusive. I don't feel like it's reflective of what, of, of me. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and by that time I was in bands and I was touring and stuff and doing stuff and involved. I was, you know, f- you know, performing and um, but even my immediate circle was just like white suburban dudes. And it was very much a boys club. You know what I mean? And, and I, you know, people, did, you, did you feel that I don't want to interrupt you? But no, did no, you okay. feel that the that the scene was excluding these other people that used to be there or perhaps maybe less of those people who were there? would have been there had an interest in the thing. So maybe it's inclusive, but I think no it was, one wants I think to it was a common I think it was a combination of the two. I think they made it a point to ultimately it came down to exclusion. Mm-hmm. But the exclusion was kind of uh, it was a kind of a veiled exclusion. Um, because it felt like it went from being like this kind of this free space and this cool thing in the old guard, you know what I mean? And and the like revival days and the the you know but it changed from that to being in the early J.C. Dobbs days, you know, but it changed into this very like a very homogenized kind of like it was like a white thing. Like, why would any why would why why would um, what is there in retrospect? Like, I'm like, why I'm trying to think of like, I don't I'm, I'm losing my words here. I watch documentaries all the time now. This is in this modern age. There's always these like punk revivalist documentaries, and people are just like, "These were the good old days," and blah blah blah. And I'm like, the good old days of like the mid '90s up into the th- the aughts. And I was like, when it was just white dudes running everything, mm-hmm. and uh, and and there was nothing like particularly like all of the the good ideas. The Dead Kennedys were fucking like. Um, Joe Biafra, when you, you go back and you listen to all these old Dead Kennedy songs, um, they predicted so much shit. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's fucking crazy. It's crazy. Chicken shit conformance like your parents. Uh-huh, yeah. and, 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 and like, uh, what was it to, to drive the bright people out of the so-called scene? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And until and, and all that's left is just a meaningless fad. And I was like, that's exactly what the fuck happened. That is exactly what happened. And this idea of being a... a, a um, it's not just like, like I don't want to just harp on the on the ask on the, the racial lens, but that is an important part of who I am in terms mm-hmm. of my identity. Like 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 I am a black man living in America that comes with some really real 
very real things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was involved in this, and I had, was an active member in this, and I was playing shows and performing and doing stuff. But um, and I held a, it was cool. But the problem is that, like in retrospect, I'm like there were elements. There were times that I felt kind of like a weird like cartoon character mascot or something. And I think I even played into it because of the environment that fostered it. You know what I mean? Once again, vir- environment will always supersede intent. So, or usually supersedes intent. But, um, and I, you know, there was so much shit that I didn't realize in terms of regarding like, just like dynamics and like, what you know, everything, elements, if I start to really, uh, uh, if I really put punk rock under a, a microscope and look at it through the lens of, of of like race or gender or 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 class, even it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up for me now, for the person that I am now. Like I'm not interested. And people are like, "Let's go. We're gonna have a reunion, and we're doing the thing in the good old days." I'm like, "The good old days are not fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. The good old days were like, well, it was just like." It's like that. You know what that is? That is to me. It's like this weird. It's a similar. Uh, it's similar to when right wing people are like, "We harken back to America and the good old days." Yeah, and we all was, know what that. And means. we all know what that means. Because you're hanging from a fucking tree, you right? Know, or, or you're exactly. drinking another fountain. Exactly. You're not going to say it. Exactly. But it's always like secret code. Exactly. Exactly. And so punk rock was this. That was a similar. In, in in punk rock, in retrospect, to me, is a similar thing. Like hindsight is twenty twenty, and. Um, and, and and it's it you know all the various iterations that came out of it be they like you know it was indie rock and fucking all I mean look at the world now you know what I mean there's we're just like banjo to death and somebody wrote this article about um, I remember having I got into a, a thing with this this woman uh, I generally don't jump into fray, into rhetorical phrase online on, on Facebook oh, yeah, but but. I just kind of had to like this woman was like this article about being black and being involved in indie rock and how it's like, you know, maybe they just aren't good enough. And maybe blah, blah, blah. People that person that wrote it just and it's, you know, we are all I was like, we don't have equal footing here. And why would any black person want to be banjoed to death? Why the bullshit that's jumping off right now and what you call indie rock? Because there is no indie rock. You know what I mean? And everyone has its capitalism has its claws in everything. Mm-hmm. They, the Armageddon happened. The apocalypse happened. We live in it now. They won. That's it. It's done. It's all about how we are functioning as people that have that are conscious and dissonant. How we function in this world and what we choose, how we choose to define ourselves in that. And a lot of my white counterparts um, uh, that were involved in stuff, they just plugged right into it because they could. Mm-hmm. They could. They had the option. They had the support systems. They had the options. They had the privilege. And um, and and now there's just it's not it it doesn't interest me. It's not I'm not you know I'm not casting dispersions on them. That's you know they're they're great and you know they're good people and doing their thing. But <clears throat> but in terms of like some sort of punk or dissonant attitude, I'm still in the trenches. You know what I mean? I'm still out here doing stuff. Like that's why when people are like we're having the, let's go to the fucking misfits reunion show or the braid reunion show or some other shit. You know I'm like I don't. <clears throat> I'm like that shit doesn't appeal to me. That shit appeals to people that are like I'm a dad and I'm a work a nine to five job now and I'm in in the you know what I mean like like yeah, yeah. it doesn't appeal to me because I'm like I'm gonna start a new band I'm yeah because I gotta remember the good old days because the creative process probably for many of these people mm-hmm. it ended 
years ago. So right. That, so there was a creative period. It's right. Very firmly bracketed, mm -hmm. and then nothing really happens after that. Right. So you just go back to the past times, and it's you know comfortable and very well organized. Right. And you can leave. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's and it's also like you know in terms of um, in terms of actually like making music and creating new things. I mean, all kinds of people make all kinds of creative things, all kinds of interesting things. So that's not to say that someone that is uh, uh, living a kind of conventional life can't still be doing awesome shit. You can, absolutely. I mean, look at look, look at Ian. You know what I mean? Ian's still slaying it, like you know. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but on the same note, well, he actually is not a, an example of a conventional life, Ian Mackay. <laughs> like, like not at he, he all. He forged his own. <laughs> he forged his own life. Like, but I think that that's the essence of. That is the essence of punk rock. Like that is the essence of the thing. I, I call it punk, but the idea of because that's kind of the, the binary that I attached this freedom to, and the ability to forge one's own to, to have agency over one's own trajectory in the in the world, um, and do so in a way that makes you feel uh, free. You know, mm -hmm. and it makes you feel. Connected or with, with with my fellow humans, uh, but at any rate, I think that. But I think that by and large, it's so much easier when you like don't when you have like a mortgage or some kids or some other other things to just be like, oh, that was really good. That's cool. I don't have to keep learning. I just have to support what already exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you I know. remember the good old days as people like clocking me in the head and right, like, skinheads right. causing fights. Right, 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 right. Like, the good old days is, was a mostly a pile of shit. Like, right. it was, it, to me, at least, it was a constant struggle against people who wanted to do actual physical harm to right. myself and my right. friends. right. right. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, yeah, Club Pizzazz is a, a yep. great example yep, of like yep. people wanting to kill you. Uh -huh, and then uh -huh. in the outside world, it would just say, fucking forget, you know. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's, yeah. So that that is my good old days. It ain't that good. Exactly. And the, and, and the other thing is, I remember uh, the um, well, like thinking about like uh, like Franklin and being in Franklin when we were for or, or random. Well, um, well, first, before that was uh, Jamie and Tom had a friend named Hyam. Hiam, I don't man. Maybe this tape will find him. If you hear this, Hiam, please hit me up, please, because I would love to catch up with that dude. But Hiam Kenick, Hiam lived in Chestnut Hill, and Hiam was he was really into like uh, hardcore. He was into uh, like uh, mod and skinhead culture, like two tone skinhead culture, and uh, and I think he had a record distro too. I think he ran a little record distro. Uh, but Hyam, and he played bass. Mm Hyam -hmm. started a band, and he wanted to start this band, and they were looking for a singer. And that was what, how I ended up in bands. Mm -hmm. Because Jamie was like, you should go hang out with Hyam because he lives close to where your mom lives. And you should go catch up with him in Chestnut Hill. And then we met up, and we went and I went and sang for Hyam's band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was the band called? <laughs> My first band ever, Grooving Power. Oh, boy. Grooving Power. We were called Grooving Power. That is we had a marvelously horrible name. It was terrible. It's terrible. It was me. Was there some funky bass in there? Oh no, no, it was no funky no, bass. That, was that, to... That's good. Oh god, but it was great because it was like me, Hiam Kinnick, Aaron Terry, and uh, and Max Fisher, and Max Fisher played drums. And he was just like he he was this like pretty like. I don't know what he did. I just remember his parents had a very, very nice house and he had a custom made drum kit and we practiced in the attic 
which his huge ass bedroom was like, you know. Um, and <laughs> Aaron was like this, he was a skinhead kid that lived in Germantown. And that was his whole aesthetic was like the like, the like uh, boots and braces, mm-hmm. uh, working class skinhead. But he was like way into reggae and way into sky and like, you know, kind of first wave skinhead type stuff. Yeah. And um, that was his thesis. And I was like, I just wanted to be like, true, chill, chill. Like, cause that was, I was going through that phase yeah. and, and with some elements of like the misfits. Well, I just, I just wanted to be in minor threat. That was like mm-hmm. my, or, or, you know, or the new iteration of the bad brains or something. Um, and then Hyam was just like on the jam. He was like riding scooters and wearing parkas and he had a Rickenbacker and like, mm-hmm. you know, the whole shit. It was this mismatch, terrible band. And what was the song? What We had a song, uh, Somebody else wrote the lyrics, but I remember being the only animal that hates each other is the one that's called the human race. <laughs> that's the only line I remember. Oh, the lessons you could have imparted. Oh my god, it's so good. With oh, oh, uh, people, uh, people are afraid to look within, judging one another by the yeah. color of their the skin. skin? Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Oh, it it was so, oh, it was so bad. It was so good, bad. But I recently, I actually recently reconnected with Aaron Terry because he lives in L.A. And I split my time between Chicago and L.A. And he and I hang out all the time. And he's he's an awesome dude. So he and I like go to like reggae shows and stuff all the time together and mash and come up with all these plans that I hope we will eventually see through but anyway um so that band didn't last much didn't last long for me uh because Hyam had other friends these kids that went to school in orland mm-hmm. and he was like they need a singer for their band you should go try out for that band and that was brian sokol and greg giuliano and tj tj cooney and there was a, a random children and that I, you know, I went to see them play at a battle of the bands, um, and that was another thing that changed my life. Another aspect that changed my life because it introduced me to four people that I would probably spend the next decade with. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I saw them play at the battle of the bands at the time. Ron McNally was singing for them, and he was cool. It was cool, you know, like they were so cool. Like the whole thing was super cool. But it blew my mind because I was like, I knew I had the desire to do stuff, but there was always this kind of, uh, there was still a wall of mystique in terms of what you're capable of, what I believed to be capable like of. Like the great bands are other people and you can just do this kind of like. Right, and I, right exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, like other people were great bands and other people did cool shit and like, you know, um, and I saw, but I saw Random Children and, I mean, not Random Children, at the time they were called the Tasmanians. And I saw them in a, um, it was like a battle of bands in, in their high school. And they were great. They were great. They were just like writing like real songs. It sounded like real fucking songs. Like mm-hmm. they sounded like real, real tunes. And, 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 um, and it was rad. It was like, I was like, these kids are, they did this. They're actually doing it. I was like, all right, I'm going to try out to sing for this band. And there wasn't much trying out. I just did it. It just ended up happening. They just kind of were like, all right, Ron, you're out. Ralph, you're in. Um, which uh, which in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> but but um, uh, it, it, was, it was crazy. And it was a whole new element. Because once again, at this point, everyone, 
everyone that I interacted with at this point, we were all city kids. Mm-hmm. We were all city kids. This point was marked the demarcation point of me of, of these were all strictly suburban kids. They were straight up suburban kids. And um, downtown was not a thing for them. I was a senior in high school with my own apartment. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like um, but they were doing this thing and they were doing this shit because, and it was cool. It was so fucking cool. And I remember going up to, to upstairs at Greg's, was it Greg's parents' house? Or was another kid named Miles Raymer who used to play at his house all the time too. Anyway, went to, to one of their houses and we went upstairs in this room where they were playing and I was just, I was flummoxed. I was blown away. Like these kids were like, I was like, they like playing the instruments. They're playing them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, uh, and as a fucking like 15 year old kid to see that was really inspiring. And I was, it, it, and it made me go, this is a thing you can do. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a thing you can do, you know? All right. So next thing you know, I'm singing for this band and I'm hanging out with these guys all the time. And that's what we're doing. And we're going around and I'm navigating all these suburban spaces that are completely new to me. Mm-hmm. And and the flip side is they're coming down to the, they're coming to the city where they're exploring. They're going, I'm taking them to shows. We're going to like, you know, revival and fucking, you know, all these other spots. And um and uh and it was it was awesome. It was super awesome. But there was once again that dynamic of being like kind of like the black friend you know what i mean mm-hmm. and part of me was like i guess i'm singing that's probably like adding to the cool points of what they're doing is right, this, this yeah. kind of tokenism that, that you know um and it was it was a uh, i wouldn't change it for the world but i'm not trying to relive it mm-hmm. you know what i mean i'm not trying to relive it eventually uh, i started playing i mean i started playing instruments and um franklin formed Right after Random Children, we practiced in my apartment downtown. Mm-hmm. I worked at the chicken place on South Street, and by by night went to went to high school by day uh, at Creative Performing Arts. At this point, I switched high schools and moved downtown. Um, and it was like Franklin was a whirlwind. It was it, it was a, the whirlwind that kind of changed my life, and just things kept. It, things just kept going. You can. This is stuff you can do. These are things you can do. Like I traveled the country. I drove around places like still in my mind. Every band has an archivist. Mm-hmm. Brian Sokol is mm-hmm. the archivist in 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 in, uh, in Franklin and Random Children. Brian Sokol is the, the dude that like I could call up and be like, because everything is just a fucking blur to me. Like mm-hmm. I, I know I, but I could call Brian and be like, Hey Brian, have I ever been to uh, Montana? And he'll be like, uh, Yeah, we played in Billings, Montana, in a basement with uh, Goodbye Blue Monday and blah blah blah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, like it is true that there is always that. And there's always an archivist. My band, the Highlight Savant, Dan, our bass player, was the archivist. I'd be like, Dan, uh, if I ever played in the Netherlands, where did I play in the Netherlands? Where? How many times we played in the Netherlands? Uh, seven times. We did the thing, you know, like so. Mm. It was, uh, uh, but it was it was interesting. Like it was crazy. Like some of the stuff that I. That those were the most like formative and interesting years. Like, well, what what led to the demise of Random Children, and then the uh, it was just Frank. a desire to go in a different direction. I think mm-hmm. T.J. Cooney was uh, he was a guitar player of Random Children because because Franklin was just Random Children with a different with me playing guitar and uh, a di- a different bassist, uh, someone and Brian playing guitar. Right. So as Random Children, did you play? Any I didn't the, play an instrument. I just sang. No, I mean. Uh, Bands that you play with, uh, like any notable band or you know. Uh, well, what was interesting in terms of the, the, the Philly scene, 
uh, J.C. Dobbs closed recently. Mm-hmm. I started. I worked at J.C. Dobbs. I was a, um, a bar back, and I knew Kathy James, and I approached her because I was just I wanted to play shows, just play, 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 and I asked her to um, if we could set up a show at J.C. Dobbs, an all ages show, and she was like, "Yeah, let's do it." And we charge at the door and people, and it was just like a space for kids to come and do stuff and see these shows. And so um, I like I would get, I would start setting up the things. And then Brian, Brian was always in tune with the like kind of DIY thing a lot um, on, a, on a broader scale. So he would like call other bands in other cities, particularly DC, mm-hmm. um, because there were all these bands that we looked up to and that he was into and he would, and we were all into him and they would have them come play these shows. And so um, it was cool. It was really cool. Like we played with, uh, well, Random Children, of course. The, the big one was Fugazi. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's what I was getting at. We yeah, played the show on Fugazi. We played the show on Fugazi. One of the greatest shows of my life. And I think, that's I think everybody who was at that show, that was the second time they played. Yeah. Fugazi played yeah, Philly. I remember because yeah. I remember the, the year before they played at Drexel in the cold-ass parking garage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was, that was amazing. Yeah. That was such a good show. Jamie and I went to that show. Jamie Mann and I that went to that show. That was with Scram, right? With Scram. And uh, ten thousand stitches. Ten thousand, yeah, yeah, yeah. stitches. Yeah. That show was phenomenal. Yeah. It was so good. It was so so good. I was I was still. Uh, to this day, I, a friend of mine who somebody snapped photos of that. Somebody took photos of that that show, and they gave me prints of the photos. And Brian Sokol has my fucking prints. I'm sure he'll be listening to this. Good. So. He has my fucking prints, and I want my goddamn prints. So at least back. they're like, safe if they're with yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. It's true. It's true. They um, but they um. Uh, <clears throat> they played that show was great I fucking loved it and Scram was awesome yeah, Scram yeah, was Scram. fucking awesome yeah I interviewed and, them and oh. they're, they're fantastic fellows Matt yeah, Mungin the, the Mungin yeah, brothers yeah the brothers oh, yeah. when did you interview them they're in the, they're in the thing go listen to it how uh, recently it like how a, recent uh, is this they were one of the first ones probably about two years ago I gotta catch up with the Mungins man the Mungins were my shit dude they were, yeah. they were great they were fucking great but that was fucking that show was great that was phenomenal and then the following year Leading up to that, we started just playing shows downtown all the time. I remember we played at a theater uh, on South Street, and I forgot what it was called. It was across the street from Tower Records, and Nick, Nick, uh, I forgot what his last name is, but Nick used to set up shows at Drexel. He was the guy who was trying to set up shows at Drexel. And oh, in the interim, Brian started like uh, uh, Elbowhead Records. And we had a couple of bands that we that we would play with all the time, and it was like this kind of mingling of the two worlds. You always like, play with Fracture. Mm-hmm. Well, well Fracture. This was before Fracture. Did Fracture? Yeah, Fracture existed back then, but I don't think they actually played any of the shows at that point. Mm-hmm. That was Fracture was like later on down the line when we started doing stuff at Dobbs. But uh, but Sokol started Elbowhead, had the idea to start Elbowhead, and then there was a bunch of. Um, there was this mingling of my friends from the suburbs and my friends from the city. And um, you had Jamie was in a band called um, Invid. There was another band called Dysrhythmia. And there's, and then of course, Random Children. I can't remember who played that show, but we played some show at this theater and it was great. And we killed it. And Nick came up to us and was came up to me and was like, you want to play a show at WKDU? With Fugazi and I was like, "Yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Let's fucking do it," you know. And it was fucking. I remember the show being nuts. And somebody recently posted it 
online. Oh, there's a video of it? Yeah, yeah, there's a video of it. I'd like to see that. But I remember some of the, I remember some of the uh, crazy stuff was happening. There was like something about like, I was on stage the whole time. So I didn't, I was, you know, I didn't know what the fuck was happening. But unless I was jumping off the stage. <laughs> but but I remember people, it was like, I think maybe 1,500 people there, tw- somewhere 12, 1,500 people there. It was the largest audience I had ever played to mm-hmm. at that point. And I remember um, there was like a, like skinheads with a razor blade in the pit, some sort of deal. And it was uh, somebody tossed a taser on stage. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I was like, Philly! It's a good, it's a good old days. Yeah, I was More like, Philadelphia, weapons. Philadelphia. <laughs> and um, someone saw a, a taser on stage. Um, people doused with water. People doused with water. Lots of water. <laughs> Lots of water everywhere. Yeah, I'll add, thank you for calling Philadelphia Electric Company. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, there was, uh, I think, did I meet Roy at that show? I think I might have met Roy Binion, who was the... Uh, the second bassist for Franklin, and my my very dear friend to this day, I might have met him there because he was running a record distro and he lived in Westchester, which was a whole another thing, another scene that kind of got we all intermingled. It was it was weird. All these like weird little tribes within. Yeah, there are folks coming from like know, Ben Salem, right, uh, right, yeah, and another part of Lancaster County, yeah, yeah. Unisound, Unisound, mm-hmm. Unisound. I love Unisound, um, but it was cool. That show was bananas. That show was absolutely bananas. Super, super nuts. Then, um, then, then Dobbs, then was the Dobbs era after that. And that was when uh, we'd have, like, bands would come from, we'd set up shows and bands would come from all over. And at the time, you had, like, I remember, like, Nation Ulysses, uh, Circus Lupus, um, who else? Tons of, of, of just killer bands. Like, killer stuff was, was, was going on at the time. Um, but oh yeah, and Franklin started at that point. Right? The, you know, because we wanted to go, we want Greg and Brian and I wanted to go a different direction, and TJ was really on the like kind of New York Dolls, uh, Sex Pistols style kind of mm-hmm. classic punk yeah. type of guitar stuff. You know, and you were uh, clearly influenced by the DC thing. I mean, I think yeah, Franklin absolutely. Was probably the most DC ish ah, Philadelphia band. It's at true, the time. absolutely, absolutely. But the, but the thing is, it wasn't after like, like the, we we came with that name. The name was uh, was based on the. Uh, the little black kid from the Peanuts. The, I didn't the, know that. The, yeah, the black, the little black kid from the Peanuts. It was his name was Franklin, and it was never. And the thing is, all those bands from DC, they were like Lincoln and Hoover, and also mm-hmm. there were no, there was never, there was never a president named Franklin. Mm-hmm. It was Frank. I mean, I guess there was, there was never a, a president whose last name was Franklin. And we were like, like everybody was like, yeah, Franklin, yeah, you guys did that split with Hoover. I was like, we never did a split with Hoover. Mm-hmm. Or you did that split with Lincoln. I was like, no, we didn't. No, we didn't. It wasn't us. Well. <laughs> but uh yeah it was great it was good we were we started out our, our bass player was um my friend Starula. like i had like i said i had an apartment my girlfriend lived around a corner her best friend lived across the street ran a pizza her parents ran a pizza place strict strict uh uh orthodox greek parents and and uh, this is your girlfriend's parents? No, no, no. My oh, girlfriend okay. lived around the corner. This yeah. was her best friend. Oh, friend. Okay, yeah. And and she introduces me, and, and this girl Stravula, and Stravula and I became fast friends. And she lived across the street. And she would stick her head out the window. I'd be like, Sula, come over, come over here. And her parents would be like, Don't go over. There was always like a problem, you know. Mm-hmm. And eventually she came over, and I was like, Here, play this thing. She's like, I don't know how to play bass. I was like, Well, here, just I'll show you. It's easy. 
and she was our first bassist mm. and uh, she never faced the audience because she was not a performer in any context you yeah, know what I mean had never yeah. really done that uh, it was super fun eventually Cerullo was just, it was just too much and then and Roy started to play bass and Roy was actually a bass player and mm. he's uh, one, still one of my best friends to this day but um, and then Roy left and then Josh started to play bass Josh was part of the uh, True High Fidelity crew kids from Abington I think it was Abington area uh, I think that's what it's called yeah um, and he wanted to play bass phenomenal bassist phenomenal bass player but he was but there was a lot of like there's a lot of weird uh, there's a lot of weird tension between he and I because it was just I, I, and and, and it, the dynamic when I think about it in retrospect um, I think a lot of it a lot of it was on my end and I think a lot of it was me dealing with like the things that I kind of understand now in terms of the dynamics that were going on back then in terms of this like like um you know when you when you're when you're a kid who when you grow up as a kid who is just like um who doesn't have the same support systems and the same kind of background as all these I'm this black kid from the from from Philly you know what I mean and they're like going to Ivy League schools and driving cars and stuff. And then your bandmates are like, why we got to come pick you up for practice? I'm like, because I don't have a way to get there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and oh, you don't have a driver's license. Well, why should I? I don't have the money to buy a car. Like, and not only that, but I pay rent. Yeah, I have a and, job. And you live in the fucking city. And I, right, and I have a job. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, what do you want? What do you yeah. want from me, you know? And not only that, but 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 at least it's this, this cascading... <clears throat> it's this rabbit hole that if you really start analyzing, you start thinking about broader, broader picture stuff. Like you know, in terms of like I have a, fr- a good friend of mine, like one of my best friends who I was just talking to. He's um, uh, he's we went to, we went to school together. His name's AJ, and he's like, I'm like, dude, this guy can't get like, kind of uh, basic financial literacy kind of stuff together, and uh, and then you start thinking about it, you're like. Young black men are not encouraged to really be financially literate. There's no like, no one teaches you this in school. Yeah, there's no class no there's no class yeah, for yeah. it. There's no class about you know. There's no no there's no structure. There's no binary for that shit. Mm-hmm. There's no like credit and and respond you know like financial responsibility and all these other things. There's nothing. Who who uh, who teaches you how to do this stuff? You know what I mean? I still feel like I don't know how to do these things. Right, like, right. I own this house. Right. I have no idea. No one explained anything to me. Right, right, I have right. no idea how anything right. works. Exactly. I know what happened in 1829. Right. But I don't know how to right. do, you know, I mean, right. eventually you adapt to it. Right. But I don't really know the intricacies of right. how this shit works. Right, exactly. And so the thing is, imagine and if you if you are a, like, like, uh, um, imagine you're like a black kid from a single parent home. Like imagine you, you, your parents are supposed to teach you that stuff, I guess. You know what I mean? There's all kinds of things that... In um in the and all kinds of things that if you if if when I think about them, and I I think about the world in general, and then I juxtapose that against my kind of my my roots as a a punk rocker and having all of my world be contingent on like a world that was largely based on white suburbanhood, male white suburbanhood, like like I'm like 
this is a no wonder there was all this like conflict and and, and weird stuff and mm-hmm. and you know and also um, these are kids like you're, right and you, we're you, kids you don't too. want to judge them too harshly as an adult because no, they didn't necessarily know how no, 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 racially not a, to deal with this no 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 not at all my dude these were my brothers you know mm-hmm. what I mean like we we tra- we we had the greatest experiences of our lives together like we we well, we well, but their binary is based in this like you know their programming is based. In white male suburbanhood, mm-hmm. and as kids, not only I'm sure they're, they're more than aware of it now, you know what I mean. Yeah. But 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 it's um and and not only that, but I wasn't even necessarily aware of it at the time. But I knew that there was something that didn't feel right, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Um, so there's uh, but you know I, I I don't say this. I don't. I'm not casting any dispersions on them. Like those are my dudes. Those mm-hmm. are my. That's my fam. That's my, my. You know. But um, but. If I'm honest, an honest assessment, like it, it is what it is. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. So, um, so I would think about shit like that, like the idea of just being like, well, well you know, why can't you do this or why can't you do that? I'm like, because I don't come from the same fucking things you come from, and I don't, I didn't have access to the same things you did. I didn't have the support systems you did. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that. You know what I mean? Everything that I had, I had to make or create or figure out myself. Mm-hmm. And then when I start to think about that especially in the context of this world that's supposed to be this like DIY punk rock make it for yourself get it together like don't let them tell us how we're going to do it we're going to do it ourselves we're going to be the ones we have agency over our trajectory in in the world like I'm like yeah but it's a little easier to have agency over your trajectory in the world when you have a car (laughs) (laughs) and when you have money coming in or when you like can can you know like you have a, a a a a little bit of privilege attached to it. Yeah, there were certainly people, you know, that I knew who, once they take out the nose ring Mm -hmm. and they trim the hair, they're on, as you said, like the trajectory of Ivy League school. Like, their parents had money and they could play wacky games for a while because everybody knows that they're eventually going to, you know, lockstep into everything for the future. Exactly, exactly. And that's the thing. And and, and, and I was, I I had a funny, oh, this is hilarious. I was talking to a friend of, uh, I did a party last night um, for those of you listening that don't know, I'm a DJ now. Uh, uh, what is your DJ name? Major Taylor. Major what, Taylor. What is that? What is Major that? Taylor is the world's first. Uh, when I started DJing, I, it was it was kind of an accident. All I wanted to do was play roots and dub reggae, and I was a bike messenger at the time. And Major Taylor was the world's first champion cyclist. I found out about him through my like cycling world, mm-hmm. and he was the world's first black first champion cyclist, and he was the world's first black athlete. To win any consecutive medals in anything outside mm-hmm. of boxing in the 1920s, so he was essentially like Michael Jordan before there was a Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. and the idea of like a superstar black athlete. Um, also, because I was playing like a lot of roots and dub reggae at the time, there were all these like military themed albums and stuff that I was really into. Like Lee Perry had a record called Admiral Perry and Friends. There was like a General Echo and like this, you know, just these cool. Cool, right? And it seemed like they're like super appropriate. And I just was like, Major Taylor. Oh, he was also a musician and hung out with a bunch of white kids. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I was like, boom, there it is. Major Taylor. There it is. So DJ Major Taylor. So anyway, I did a party last night. A friend of mine who I did the party for uh, was like, I went to this school and I had a, I had a, in grade school, was it grade school? Or high, no, it was high school. He was like, my high school, and I had my guidance counselor, my high school guidance counselor was Ralph's bandmate's mom. Hmm. And I remember telling her that I wanted to play in a band and her saying, don't play in a band, that's for bums. 
So I was like, good to know what you always thought of me. You know, like, like, so good. Nothing good personal. No, yeah, nothing, yeah. Per- nothing personal. Good to know what your family's. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, but uh, it's for bums. You know what I mean? It's for bums. But that's the, I mean, but that's the sort of shit that like, like those, those kinds of interesting dynamics, like, like it's weird, like interacting with your friends, parents and being like, what do they really think of me? Like, what's, what is, you know what I mean? Like, what's going on? Like, what's this, like, I mean, that's just, there, there's a whole, there's a whole like spiral of things that you, that when you assess the world and you understand how you fit into it in the big picture, as well as the small picture, you know, the, uh, uh, that, that was a lot of stuff there, there, you know, and then Josh came about and Josh wasn't some like, he also, he came, he, he was of like modest means for the most part, but on the same, I was still infinitely more privileged than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I'm sure he would probably disagree with that, but 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 in retrospect, um, I actually ran. I saw Josh a couple a couple months back. Last time I was on the East Coast, and I was actually super stoked to see him. And I was like, "Oh, it's Josh. Hey, dude, how you doing?" You know. So, but but it's uh, it was weird. It's weird. It was really weird. It was really really weird. Then then there was Adam. There was we would play a fracture all the time, and it was uh, and and Adam started doing his thing. Adam Gorin. Adam Gorin. Adam started doing his thing. Adam and his package. Adam and his package, and that was uh uh and that was cool and it was fun and it was our our like thing. When I think about it, once again, if if that the stuff there was so much stuff that I just would not be interested in now, if I was doing it, if we were still doing, you know what I mean? Like I one of the reasons I'm not interested in going backwards and being like let's do. Like, there will never be a Franklin reunion. There will never be a, you know, when people are always like, we're Franklin. I'm like, it's yeah. not going to happen. I'm not doing it. I'm not interested in that, you know. Yeah. But um, but Adam was doing his thing. And I remember him, it, I mean, as a lot of people do, he did this this song, Happy, for my birthday, we were on tour. And he did this song, Happy Birthday, Ralph, I Love You. And the lyrics were like, Happy Birthday, Ralph, I Love You, even though you're fucking disgusting. Mm-hmm. Now, he did this for my birthday, and it was this endearing thing. Because once again, there's this dynamic when you're the only, like, black person who's doing stuff. And you're hanging out with a bunch of people. And you take on this, like, uh, weird, um, you feel, if you feel, regardless of whether it's accurate or not, if you feel like some sort of mascot or some sort of token, then uh, you're getting this affirmation, this external affirmation from it. And you might actually play into it to some degree, you know. But, um Adam wrote this song and it was funny and it was cute and endearing to me um, at the time because it was my birthday and we were on tour and mm-hmm. he performed it and we were playing I think it was a basement show somewhere and you're disgusting because what like he, there's food he, in my beard and there's like you know like you know there's, there's all he, he goes on to list all the, yeah. the, the, the reasons that I'm disgusting <clears throat> in this song um, and it was funny. It was funny as hell, and it was really cute, and it was like you know endearing to me at the mm-hmm. time. But Adam then puts out a record, and he puts the song on a fucking record. The song's on his out on his record, and it's it circulates all over the goddamn place. <laughs> so next thing you know, I'm walking around. I'm a grown ass man at this point. You know, I'm in my twenties, like I'm in my mid twenties and stuff, or early twenties. And I'm walking around, and I'm going to these places, and I'm on tour, and we're like, I'm with my white bandmates in these weird white cities and playing in these shows that are all white bull, white dudes, and you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, and then some 16-year-old kid is like, oh my God, you're Ralph, you're fucking disgusting. I'm like, I don't fucking know you. 
I don't what, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? And I was like, this is whack, man. This fucking sucks. You already feel weirdly, you, you feel like an outsider in a scene that's supposed to be for the outsiders. Yeah. You feel like an outsider in a scene that's for the outsiders and a person that's supposed to be your friend puts this thing out into the world that was supposed to be a thing amongst our friends that was funny. Yeah. You know what I mean? That puts this thing out amongst the world and then all of a sudden you've it, got it. It defines you for people who don't know you. Right. It defines you for yeah. people that don't know you. And then on top of that, you're the only, once again, there's that, that racial element is always yeah. there. That class element is there. That like, you know, the, the weird stuff is, is always there. And so, um, then there was another interview and I was like, man, this fucking sucks. You know what I mean? I was, and, and I was kind of pissed. And then, and, I remember watching, there was another interview, I can't remember, I saw it online, um, and someone was like, is it true that Ralph Darden doesn't like the song that you wrote for him? And he was like, that's because Ralph's a big fucking baby. And I was like, no, it's because I don't like being a grown man and being defined, and being the only black person in a room full of white kids and having people tell me like I'm some sort of fucking cartoon character. You know, uh, I, yeah. I would I toured I went with him on two mm -hmm. of his tours, a part mm -hmm. of two of his tours, and I would see, you know, a room full of people mm -hmm. who don't know you and I never really screaming, thought Screaming, screaming that Ralph is fucking disgusting. Yeah. You know and I, I mean? never thought at the time, like, oh, I wonder what Ralph would think about right. all of these people. Like, right. A series of you know, chubby 14-year-old nerds who are all saying, right, oh, right, exactly. about you. Exactly. Yeah. And these yeah. are the same. This is the same, like, like it's that weird culture. That's like, you know what I mean? Like, this, like that's, that, that shit, does, it did not translate well. <laughs> it, did, it did not go, go well with me. So um, so there was this shit like that. that are you like, friendly with Adam now? Or you yeah, Adam's, 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 Adam's like, too. I mean, I haven't hung out with him in a long time. You know what I mean? I haven't hung out. But, but that definitely was like, there were also... Uh, points over the course I remember there were points where Adam would rub me the wrong way because we were I remember we were on tour I remember this one time we were on tour and we were in some city I think Frank it was either Franklin or AMFM was on tour Adam's package and the the sir the, the the server at the restaurant that we were at was really this was like really attractive girl she's very cute and uh, and she comes over to the table and I'm like flirting with her and I'm not like I, you know I grew up like it's interesting while I'm far more in tune with it now with my um over the past like decade or so I've become far more in tune with um the ideas of genderial politics and gender politics and and uh, ideas of patriarchy and sexism that kind of permeate of living under an umbrella of capitalism, that shit's important to me now more than it's ever been. But at the time, it was always in my, it was there because I was in that environment with people that were talking about these things. And I knew that that was like, that's what I'm supposed to be down with. But I didn't really understand it on the same note. And so I did a lot of dumb shit as a kid and as a, you know, um, but once again, the people that learn these things and talk about this stuff, who are the people that get educated? White suburban kids. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's nobody talking about fucking patriarchy or, or sexism when you're a fucking, you know, when you're some kid, you know what I mean? When you're just like, when you don't have, when you're not from that circle, you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? So I have another, a whole different way of dealing with it. I'm a human and I'm going to be like respectful to other humans. And I was raised by women like mm -hmm. a bunch of women. So naturally, I'm not going to be fucking gross. At any rate, I'm talking to this girl, and I said something to her. I can't remember what it was. And it was like, it was very, it, it, like, it wasn't, at least, it wasn't threatening or weird or creepy. And she kind of giggled, and, 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 and Adam goes, Ralph! 
don't be such a dick. Don't be like a sexist dick. And I saw her and I thought to myself, who the fuck are you? What, who, who the fuck do you think you are? Like, what are you, my parent? Like, mm. what kind of, once again, this paternal dynamic that's like, 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 oh, he has to be like reined in. You know what I mean? Because he's, he's a, like some sort of like, uh, uh, He's like this. He's just a sad. He's crazy. He's yeah, out there slapping a spear. Yeah, like, exactly. Like I'm gonna throw a spear and slap a butt and be like, "Come here," you know what I mean? Like I say, you say some shitty stuff. Like I'm a, like I'm gonna be like, "Come talk to me, girl, Rudy. This makes me curious." See, no. too, soon, pretty too, well. soon, too soon. Too soon. No, but 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 maybe she should just put something in her drink. No, you Jesus know? Christ. Are you she was serving sleepy? me the drinks. But but it was but that but but that was the sort of that was the sort of thing. That as you get older and you become more in tune with who you are and you start to become more in tune with like the, the you, with your environment, the things around you that are going around you, you're like, what? You're going to give me shit about flirting with someone that I, that, that, uh, that's attractive because I, you know, I'm a single dude who, you know what I mean? And, and uh, there's a value judgment assigned to that. You know what I mean? That even, you know, that and not only that, but to, to take on this dynamic as if you're saving me you know what i mean like as if you're going you're you're teaching me something teaching me a lesson meanwhile you write a song called happy birthday ralph you're fucking disgusting and a bunch of like uh you know your audience is largely white suburban dudes you know what i mean white suburban nerds that are probably the same kind of people that are like gamers and shit like that that now you know what i mean like so these these this i didn't have i didn't have the patience for that shit anymore you know what i mean i didn't have the patience for it as i got older i was just like mm, fuck I, my my life. I'm still car. I am the DIY thing. I have carved my life out. I didn't go to college. I didn't do anything. I'm like, I'm. I didn't. I didn't. Um. I didn't have the means. I didn't have the support systems. Anything that I got, I got because I made it myself. And so, and I'm still learning things. And I'm still growing. You and we always and we all are. But to be around people that to be around and 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 attitude or an idea that you uh don't have to learn you're here to teach me stuff was it was fucking it was annoying so mm-hmm. that was one of the things that drove a rift in me and that world in general and, and and that crew in general was um um particularly with adam that was like those were like kind of the the moments that made me be like i'm just not i don't need this mm-hmm. like you know and um uh and so it's just like um I, you know my in addition to that, I also I was constantly questioning whether I can do any of the things. Once again, these were the people. These were my brothers. These were the people that showed me that I could do these things. Like, you can go on tour. You can put out a record. Mm-hmm. You can do these things. They 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 uh, introduced me, opened the, the, the door to this world. And uh, there came the constant questioning of, like, in myself of, like, can I do it without them? Do I need to be tethered to them, even though they they make me feel uncomfortable sometimes? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, do I need them? I think I need. And and I, you know, after a while, I was like, no, I don't. I, like, you know, I don't think I do. You know what I mean? I don't think I do. So it, it it wasn't like any like, you know, when Franklin broke up, there wasn't any like acrimony or anything like that. We were all just like, um. One thing that was fun that was that that really resonated with me was I remember sitting around the table and Greg saying, well, I don't need to define myself by being in a band. And uh, 
he also said, I don't think that we've accomplished anything that was like so big that we need to keep doing this. And I was like devastated by that because I thought that we accomplished so much because it was such a thing to me. Mm-hmm. It was such a thing. Like these were opportunities I would have never had. I would never have had any of it. Like as far as I knew, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, these were opportunities that I would never have. And now all of a sudden it's all like not going to be there anymore. Like it's, you know, and, uh, and that resonated with me in years. And I thought about it for years after. And I was like, oh, you know what? Being in a band does kind of define me, or like making not not necessarily being in the band, but making music and still always being in the active and being in the trenches and and touring and traveling and doing all the things like that's that's that is at the core of who I am. That is at the core of my identity, um, and um, and he was right in terms of like what did we accomplish? A bunch of stuff that was like that we need to st- like at the time I was devastated that he didn't think so. But in retrospect, I was like, no, we were just we were just a bunch of kids in a band. And that was cool. It was awesome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We did some cool shit. No need to keep rehashing it and trying to like make it, you know, and then I would turn, then I'll see all these documentaries and like people would be like, oh, like, like, you know, there's documentaries about everyone now. There's documentaries oh, yeah. about bands that nobody gives a shit about. And like, mm-hmm. I'm so fucking glad that when Greg said that, I was I, like, I'm so, like, I, you know, I'm glad that that kind of stuck with me because I was like, I would hate to be, uh, if it meant something, why desecrate it by dragging it out of the grave? It's never going to be as good. Right. Yeah. And if it doesn't mean anything, then why do it? Mm-hmm. And nothing's worse than seeing people, I don't want to see my, my. I don't want to see bands that were crazy, like, I don't want to see somebody on stage do a half jump. You know, you know what I mean? Because you're like, oh, my back hurts, and I'm carrying my kid around and sitting at a desk all day. Like, I don't want to see that. Because at another warehouse or another basement, there's going to be someone who's doing the full job. Right. So if you want to see it, there's someone who's like living the thing. Exactly. Exactly. And and you're not at that thing if you're at the old folks' home. Exactly. 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 You hit the nail on the head, and 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 it was one of those things that like like. Uh, and I and I also think about it in terms of like the way that the world has evolved. One of my 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 heroes, one of my all time heroes, is Joe Strummer. Mm-hmm. And Joe Strummer, I think about myself like I'm like Joe Strummer. I don't think Joe Strummer would want to like. Well, maybe he would. I don't know. But but I remember before he shortly before he died, uh, Joe Strummer was talking about like like going to raves and techno music, and he was like, yeah. "Have you seen these? You heard these sounds that these kids are yeah. making, and and all this because he wants to keep it moving. Yeah, it was yeah, always yeah, about embracing it. a future that is exactly, happening, and the future's happening. Exactly, yeah, yeah. it was like you gotta keep it moving. You gotta keep it moving. And I like, you know, I discovered this DJ thing that that came largely by accident, which led to me like, you know, laptop production and making things. And also, there's still my roots are always going to be in playing actual instruments. But I'm not necessarily. I'm not trying to, um, like I just want to. Like I'm. I, I'm excited about what what's next. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about what what I can create. I'm excited about this having discovered a new, another facet in my toolbox of being an artist and being a communicator. Um, uh, what what is going to come out? You know what I mean. What what am I gonna like? Somebody, um, Damon, Damon Locks of the Eternals of Trenchmouth, he said something that, he said, uh, I'm not, I'm a communicator. And I took that on. I was like, yeah, that's a good, that's good. He's like, I'm a communicator. It's not about being a musician. Uh, it's about being a communicator. Like, I'm a communicator. 
and I have a toolbox full of things that I use to communicate with people to express whatever I need to express. Mm. Sometimes that's writing songs in a, in a band and playing on stage and performing. Sometimes it's uh, it's 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 DJing. Sometimes it's making mixtapes or producing beats or making stuff. With, you know, uh, sometimes it's drawing, doing visual art. Sometimes it's talking to to, to you know to people just talking sometimes you know so you you you, you, i'm simply a communicator and i'm excited about using those tools and honing them i'm not Mm -hmm. interested in going backwards and doing the old shit no one ever came up with anything awesome by being like you know what we do same shit i did 10 years ago (laughs) yeah you know what i mean so there's plenty of people who will buy it there's probably financial Mm -hmm. remuneration there there almost inevitably is Mm -hmm. but intellectual creative enumeration no Right, and I'm not interested in that. And uh, like now, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, in terms of uh, making just like, uh, I, I do good. My, you know, what I mean, my life is fucking awesome. It's awesome. Like, I, like, I'm, I'm blown away by the things that I've accomplished. You know what I mean? Like, I'm blown away. I think about my life in ten year increments, and I think about the stuff that, like, me ten. That's that's kind of my goal is to always be looking at, uh, what would Ralph ten years ago think of Ralph now? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and. For the past like three decades, you know, or past two decades, it's been pretty, pretty freaking awesome. Like it's been like pretty dope. Like I like I, I like I, I like <coughs> excuse me <coughs> excuse me. I like what my life's become. As a matter of fact, because I like what my life's become, um, I feel like it has led to a more authentic me. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that, I think that it has led me to. Caring about the world a lot more, being a more outwardly focused person, because um, and understanding how I fit into it and trying to like make effect some sort of change in it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and and define myself, you know, um, define myself as a as what I consider to be a good human being, mm-hmm. um, but that all can like. You know, I'm a DJ now. I, I run a, like a, a small business, um, booking other DJs and doing high, uh, doing high end one off events. And I also write music and score films. I did my first feature length film uh, about six years ago. What was the film? It was called Polish Bar. Mm-hmm. It was uh, <laughs> it had a had quite quite the cast. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Piazza from uh, he, he, he was in Jersey Boys recently. He was also in uh, Boardwalk Empire as Lucky Luciano. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Vincent Piazza, uh, uh, Judd Hirsch. Mm-hmm. From, from I remember ta- him from Taxi. Taxi. Judd Hirsch. Yeah. Richard still alive. Richard Belzer. Mm. Richard Belzer is the Bells. In it. The Belzer. Richard Belzer was in it. Um, and Meatloaf. Oh. Golden Brooks from Girlfriends. And, and uh, rapper Chingy was in it. I was I worked on the film. I was I wrote all the original. I composed all the original music for the film, and I was brought in as a consultant because I had to teach Vincent Piazza how to look like he was actually DJing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, um, and I was also in the film. Was he holding like a headphone to one ear? Yeah, with yeah. one hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had to like you know. Well, he was in this film. I think that was. I think that the the. the um, that the directors were had a very like kind of vague idea of what like the DJ world is, yeah. you know what I mean at the time, you know. But, but I think uh, so. The, the 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 film itself is 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 uh, it's weird. <laughs> it's kind of a, kind of a hot mess. But but I had a lot of fun working on it. It was uh, and it was my first feature length film, and it really like once again it was another 
another one of those moments where I was like, you can do this. <laughs> and so I started, it started to create music. I started writing music. Uh, also after, after, um, my last band, the highlight savant, um, broke up or not actually never broke up. We just never, we just stopped playing. <laughs> we just stopped playing. Um, uh, we pulled a Fugazi. We're like, we're not breaking up. We're just kind of, you know, just not playing ever yeah. again. You know, but no, uh, I was still writing music and I kept writing tons and tons of music and I had this, I, you know, I paired up with a, a friend of mine from high school, he's an animator and we came up with this, I, this concept, the, uh, this project, the puny humans, which we never quite followed through with, but it was supposed to basically be like, essentially like the, 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 the cheap, the cheap way to describe it is we're supposed to be a budget version of gorillas because mm-hmm. Rob and I, we were comic book you know, I do artwork. Rob, we went to art high school together uh, to create informing arts together. And Rob and I, I was like, I'll make the music. You make the like animated counterparts to the music in the videos. And we made one video. And he, but he also has like two kids, lives in Seattle and is a director and animator for commercials and stuff. And that led to me and Rob working together all the time. And next thing you know, we're doing like, we did a Transformers toy commercial together. Yeah, we did like, you know, we did this kids book promo, promo thing for, you know, for an online series. We did an episode of Happy Tree Friends, you know. And so thus was this new chapter of my life, just like writing music for stuff. And I, and I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, and then the DJ aspect is kind of fulfilling this like need to perform. Um, this desire to perform because I was always a performer ever since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, this, 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 it fulfills this desire to perform and allows me to, it's, like it pays, it pays pretty well mm-hmm. and um, and I get to travel uh, all the time and still do the thing. So, um, eventually I would like to start another band. I have, mm-hmm. a, I have a, some ideas for another band but for now, I'm not in a place, I'm like, I'm toggling. I live in two cities. I don't have a, you know, you know, but I don't have a way to do it right now, but mm-hmm. I will sort it out when the time is right. It will happen. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just rambling. All right, well, I wanna, there's one thing I want to get to, uh, I guess, probably, I guess our last question, cause we're, we're, you know, we've been here for a while. No, I got uh, more stuff to <laughs> ramble on, rant about. <laughs> uh, something I've tried to get to with some of the people that I've spoken to is that you talked about earlier in the interview when you were younger, you would watch shows to see like kids doing stuff, specifically right. like the black kid in the show doing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's always a search for people to find reflections of themselves, you know, right. people that look like them mm-hmm. who are doing the things that mm-hmm. they're interested in. And sometimes that can be very difficult. Yes. I think it's maybe a little less difficult now because you probably these days see more people that look different doing the stuff that people are interested right. in. But still for young people, you know, a young black kid is going to look for like the black singer in the right. band or something like that and maybe draw some inspiration from the person. And I think that, that that's kind of a crucial role that you probably played in in the bands that you mm-hmm. were in, Absolutely. you know, for younger people. So the, the question is, do you feel that there's a certain responsibility that you carry? Because whether you like it or not, you become a role model for somebody. Mm-hmm. And the person looks at you and how how do you address an audience? How do you behave do you feel that there's any sort of a, a pressure on you or, or or some element that that is uh that compels you to be something of a role model because you're going to be analyzed that much more tightly by the people observing you absolutely but it's not in the lens of strictly being like a dude in punk bands mm-hmm. like i feel a pressure to be I, I am responsible for 
Okay, I've got I've got three filters that are my benchmarks that I process everything. Everything goes through these three filters in order of importance. The first is that I'm a human being, and these are uh, uh, so when I when I'm doing something or making a decision. Um, I think what is the most human thing possible? And to be human means to not necessarily just care about only oneself, but all of the humans that are around you, uh, both immediately and all over the world. You know, um, <clears throat> so what is the most human thing I can do when I'm asking a question? You know what I mean? When I'm when I'm faced with with a uh, with something, a problem that has to be solved or something to create, or you know, that that goes through. That's the first filter. The second. <clears throat> is that I'm an artist. I've replaced the word punk with artist because it's kind of, it's vague. Once again, I'm a communicator. Mm -hmm. And I think as an artist, it is, uh, that can, <clears throat> I'm sure plenty of people will have their own definitions of what it means to be an artist. But mine is that it is your job to pull back the veil of that which is not uh, uh, immediately apparent and do that with whatever means you have. Whether it be music, whether it be education, whether it be drawing, whether it be visual arts, whatever it is. But as an artist, it is your job to challenge the status quo. That clearly comes from my roots in punk rock, which will clearly come from just being an outsider in general. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and, um, um, and even when that means asking uncomfortable questions and asking uncomfortable questions in environments or of people... of questions that people just don't want to want to answer and things that they don't want to face. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, um, <clears throat> I'm a black American as a black American, a black American male. Being a black American male comes with some very specific connotations. I've traveled. I've traveled a lot. And God, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, <clears throat> I'm dying. Did I'm you, dying, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Do you need some more black cherry tea? Oh, I might, I might have to get some more black cherry tea. But, um, but as a black American male, that comes with a very specific set of connotations. If you have any like doubts of that, look at the news from the past two years. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, uh, specific implications. like, And not only that, but traveling a lot, you go abroad and you see people's perception of what it means to be a black American, especially a black American male. And it also gives you a certain degree of, of um, empathy and kinship with other people, um, uh, be it like, you know, uh, be it women in general, you know, like the, the things that women have to, to deal with living in a patriarchal society and in, in, in part world that is dominated by capitalism or be it, uh, you know, you know, when I watch the news or if I hear somebody talk about like crazy things like terrorism or they're like, oh, we did, you know, terrorists. And we did, you're like, well, you know what? Cops came into my neighborhood and killed a bunch of people. I'm sure that people in my neighborhood are pretty angry. Uh, cops killed people that look like me on a, a routinely. Uh, is that you know, does that not resonate? Is that, mm -hmm. does that, does that not, does that not answer your question of what would drive someone to be so vehemently angry against uh, power structures and subordination, domination dynamics? Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, so those are my three, my three filters that everything goes through. Um, and, and it, those are, that is the order of importance. They don't always line up. All three of them don't always line up, mm -hmm. but, um, but I do feel a sense of responsibility and I feel a sense of responsibility, particularly um, as a musician and a DJ that creates stuff, the things that I have to put out into the world. Um, I, there are, 
I never really viewed myself as a role model, but there are definitely a lot of young, I have a lot of young folks that come to me and, and kind of look up to me, which which is it's just kind of crazy which is, when I think about it, when I really think about it. But, but, um, but I do feel a responsibility not just to them, I feel responsibility to my fellow human beings. You know what I mean? I feel a responsibility to, to the world that has allowed me to craft my life, that has allowed me to actually like come into contact with all the things that I've come into contact with and to, to, to be a largely, I'm a largely free individual. I believe I am, you know, I think I am. And I, you know, I, I, I have a good life. And as a result of that, I think you can't just be a faucet all the time. You have to, I mean, you can't just be a drain all the time. You have to be a faucet sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I try to find projects and things that fit my skill set that will allow me to do, to put back on the buffet table. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? I mm -hmm. want to, that will allow me to, to contribute something to, to the world specifically in in the in the pockets that I understand. So lately I've been working with at-risk kids um in Chicago. I have a friend, she's a, a therapist for um uh groups of at-risk kids and I will go first we started out at a a nonprofit organization for abused women um that kind of helps empower them and get them out of their situations. Um but I would go talk to the teenage boys of the women and we would just talk about music. And then I thought it was a great foil for some critical conversations. And my only goal was not to get them to listen to or like anything or not like anything. My goal was simply to get them to ask questions mm -hmm. and to give them a little bit of that artist. You know what I mean? To mm -hmm. expose them to the idea of the human and the black male filter while most of them were Latinos. But but mm -hmm. but. The black male filter was still like, you are a brown kid operating in, in America and there's certain things that you should mm -hmm. probably know. Right. And here's some critical thought. Here's, like, we, like, we like misogynist rap music, but don't not like the misogynist rap music because Lord knows, you know, Fetty Wap is fun. <laughs> Gucci Mane is fun. You know what I mean? But ask questions. Why is it fun? Ask yourself why do you like this? What is it that appeals to you about this? Mm -hmm. And especially coming from the environments that you come you come from, and and so projects like that, like like things that um well you know I my responsibility um I I, I definitely feel a, a weight of responsibility because I feel like my life is too good to not give back. Mm -hmm. Um, to put uh, Joe Strummer, one of my favorite Joe Joe Strummer quotes. No input, no output. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what yeah. it meant. You know what I mean? Like you have to put something in to get something back. Um, and I, I'm, I'm very vehement about the idea of like, is it, is it, uh, is it pluralism? Is that what it is? It was the idea of what connectedness of everyone. Like mm -hmm. this idea of we are all connected. We are all. Um, and so if someone is, if I'm living a relatively privileged life now, that means that someone else is not and but you forge in in your situation you're forging this privilege for yourself mm -hmm. so you certainly know people who who if they come from privilege mm -hmm. they just kind of perpetuate right it. so there's right. not a lot of struggle so you, i guess you know you can show to these kids that you didn't come from a position of privilege right. and you managed to create a life for yourself right. that was artistically 
um, stimulating, mm -hmm. but also you can live comfortably. You yes. don't have to live in a trash can. Right. And, <laughs> yeah, like, there can exactly. be a balance between art and commerce, and, exactly. still, and they don't have to be at odds with each other. Exactly. And I think that maybe for a lot of young people mm -hmm. in those situations, they just don't see that example. They see maybe really rich mm -hmm. rapper, mm -hmm. and then they see like somebody else at the very bottom, but mm -hmm. there's not a middle path that's still artistic mm -hmm. and not just like, you know, yeah. Flipping the burgers. Well, there's also there's there's also the idea of just anyone that is on a margin. Like, I, I've kind of turned my focus to anyone that is left behind or anyone that is in the margins. Mm -hmm. I, I, I am trying to find, like, at some point, I want to find a way to work with uh, my good friend, like, my, 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 my good friend and big brother, big influence on me, Damon Locks. Of the, uh, uh, he works with, um, he teaches art with to prisoners. Mm -hmm. And he and I, years ago, I talked about this, and I was like, I want to DJ in a prison. I was like, I want to do a party for prisoners. These are people that are just like, that society has deemed useless. Society has deemed that these people don't deserve anything. You know what I mean? And not even attention. You know what I mean? And um, that was a conversation we had maybe like three years ago. And he winds up like working, teaching art in prisons and getting involved in this program. And, he, and he's killing it. It's, it's freaking great. It's awesome. You know, it's awesome. And I love that idea. Like uh, maybe like, like junkies, old people, people that just like no one wants anything to do with them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like I feel that we as a society, we have such a, uh, especially in America, like it's like this fucking consumptive giant hot mess and and uh everyone's so self in it, it like the, it, if there's anything that i could do it, it for the world in general is just in just like a massive wave of empathy is mm -hmm. i would just like just a massive way that just empathy that's it it's all we need is a little bit of empathy it's it a little not hard. seem to be the way that this right no it's not it's like no. we, we live in a world empathy is weak man <laughs> yeah exactly i mean we live in a world full of multiple like I, I i'm i'm ripping this straight out of the out of the the like pages of robert jensen professor robert jensen from the you know university of austin he's a uh uh professor of journalism i think it is but um, we live in a world full of multiple cascading crises mm -hmm. with no systems in place to deal with any of them. And a society that runs headlong like into these crises and turns away from any deep intellectual analysis of it and any deep assessment of it. And society like our, our social system, our, you know, socially, politically, economically, we don't have anything in place to deal with any of this shit. And we are straight up on a collision course with something ugly ourselves ourselves it, it's like the, the mirror right the living, yeah, yeah, exactly the collision course with the mirror exactly is, exactly yeah. the living world is is the living world is on a collision course with humanity like that's mm -hmm. crazy yeah. the fact that the planet that you live on is is on a you're going it's going to kill you that's yeah. one way or another we're going to kill ourselves with it yeah. you know what i mean um and something ugly is coming down the pike and it's not going to be like in some far off science fiction future it's going to be fucking Maybe not in my lifetime. Maybe in my lifetime, you know. But God, I hope I can clock out before that. Right, right, right. And then, even, and then, even if that means tomorrow. Right. Well, but the, the, but the problem is that, it's, that there's like like that like something crazy's coming down the pike, and 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 rather than be like, okay, guys, we need to get together as a world and figure out as humans and figure out how can we, uh, if there is any chance of averting some sort of terrible crisis, how would we do that? 
but the kind of social engineering that that would take, I, don't, I have very little faith in, in it, especially in a world that is dominated by capitalism. There's not, largely nothing that really competes with it. No one's really like, you know, um, so because of that, there's like, you know, I feel like <laughs> it's kind of interesting because people that know me know me as like, oh, it's Ralph. He's the DJ. He's the guy out of the club. He's like this kind of gregarious dude. But actually, I'm a pretty bleak person. <laughs> like, like, you know, I'm a pretty bleak person. Uh, but that bleakness doesn't, uh, or at least I'm what people would perceive as bleak because it seems kind of personal to, to say it's depressing. But I'm not depressed. I'm happy. My life is great. Mm-hmm. But, um, um, but I feel like I, because, but I do definitely feel like, oh, we're doomed. Without a doubt. We're screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, then my, for me, I feel like I choose to define myself as a person that I was a human and I tried to do something and it's my responsibility to try in any little tiny way that I can in terms of like not, you know, I'm not talking about these like tacit bullshit fucking like participating in the fucking partisan wrangling and bullshit um, uh, mainstream political structures. You know what I mean? Like, like part of me is like, yeah, you know, or things like recycle you know you know you know what i mean like yeah. that that's not, like like I, I i think we're beyond i think we might be, be way beyond that the time for that you know so but to find the things that work for me like for a while i went through a stint where i wanted to be a high school teacher i wanted to be a high school art teacher or a high school music teacher but then i realized fuck the education system it's garbage the education system is garbage but i mean i know people who are teachers some of whom came out of some of the bands we went to see mm-hmm. who i think are not only great teachers, but mm-hmm. are in in the way that you're reaching out to, mm-hmm. to at risk youth doing a similar thing, yes. you know, yes. and and they're helping to push people, maybe even just gently in a yes. direction. That, the, that, well, I think I mean, I, someone's got to do that. No, 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 no. I I I think that the the system is garbage. I don't think teachers are garbage. Yeah. I think teachers are great. I think anybody that is willing to dedicate their life to educating people is is great. They you know uh, is is great by my my standards, but but um, but I think that. The, the Philadelphia school system, the Chicago school system, the idea of college, one, if one has to go to learn anything outside of what is kind of like anything that, you know, college, what is the most, the craziest thing you've ever done for money? Go to college because mm-hmm. now you're in debt, you know what forever. I mean? Paralyzing yeah. debt forever. Yeah. Yeah. And and combined with the fact that it's it, 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 the school system doesn't even teach you basic shit. Once again, financial literacy, uh, something like simple like sex education. What, like, as a people of certain generations, people like my mom's generation and people that were older than me, it was like, don't talk about sex. You mm-hmm. just don't do it. And then if you do, then it's just one talk and that's it. And that's you're supposed to encompass everything, this thing that defines so much of like, and so you have issues with like, um, uh, ideas of, you know, people in my generation have to be like raised, we have to raise ourselves with like what, our peers and the porn tape that gets passed around. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what defines. Yeah, and then then you have to ask, then you get into questions about like when you start having conversations about then then people wonder why like gender politics or why people are so fucked up why things are so fucked up of course it is because you know what I mean no one knows shit so if the education system was actually doing what it was supposed to do so at any rate to digress the idea is that I have to find my own vent my own avenue like I don't want to go be I like after thinking about it. Um, I was like, I don't want to be a high school teacher in any of these high school systems. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be. I want to find a, a pocket that, that I want to do it just like every other aspect of my life that I have forged. I want to forge my own way of giving back, but make it be substantive. It's not about me. It's about mm-hmm. like 
uh, how I can optimally give people what I have to offer. Um, and so this thing, teaching these kids, they like, you know, having these conversations with these kids was great. It was perfect. I didn't have to, you know, I didn't have to go to college for 10 years to do it. I didn't have to do, you know, I didn't go through any other like bullshit, jump through any like bullshit bureaucratic loops to do it. Mm -hmm. It just, we just do it. We just did it, you know? And, um, and I've done like four groups so far. Then, uh, I was, uh, as I was talking to you before the interview, before I, I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which has been a really a great like balancing factor in my life in general. Uh, um, <clears throat> I've been doing it for ten years uh, sporadically, but I love it. It's something I intend to keep in my life forever. Like rock, I'm gonna roll till the wheels fall mm -hmm. off. But um, uh, I have decided that I want to go to. Um, there are parts in Africa where people think um, that if you have sex with a virgin or a elderly woman, it will cure you of venereal diseases. And these are underserved communities where AIDS is rampant mm -hmm. and rape is, is become uh, routine. It's become kind of routine. So there's a nonprofit organization that has started teaching self-defense courses to grannies and, and young girls, young women. And I saw like a photo series on Art News Africa and the, uh, on Instagram that explained all this. And I was, I was fascinated with it and I thought to myself, well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, for those who don't know much about it, is a, um, it's a grappling art. And it's uh, based on, it teaches you how to uh, attack an opponent. There's an element of it is that it teaches you how to attack an opponent while you're on your back with someone between your legs mm -hmm. and it teaches you how to uh, attack them despite their size. So I thought to myself, this is not in, in East or West Africa yet, so they need this. Mm -hmm. So now I'm in the process of trying to get a, a group of jujitsu players together mm -hmm. and I would like to, within maybe a year or so, um, tap into a couple organizations and get a, a group of people together to go over there and teach teachers how to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, this is a marvelous idea. Yeah. yeah I would how, love to see this. Yeah, and how to teach yeah, and yeah. teach and teach these women mm -hmm. and <clears throat> teach these women how to defend themselves. And, and, and not only that, but it's also like um, there are other martial arts that its efficacy is, is, is unquestioned. But it's also... <coughs> it's also... Um, I actually, uh, just to go off a tangent for a second, I actually uh, have a, a friend of a friend who trains in Colorado, and uh, he told me about a girl that came into class one day with a black eye, and she was, and everybody in the class was like, what happened? She was like, oh, God tried to rape me at a party, mm -hmm. and, and I broke his arm, and uh, I broke his arm, and I thought to myself that if that were uh, an environment in the, in the kind of modern world, I mean, the kind of world that we live in, you start to inject a toxic masculinity into it, and people are like, well, you should have shot that mother, you should have killed that motherfucker, you know, and I'm like, fuck him, he's a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, I love the idea of, of, of dealing with something so drastic and so awful and making it a thing and resolving it in a way <clears throat> that becomes a painful learning moment for the person that tries to do this thing, 
but everyone walks away alive. Mm-hmm. No one's like shot in the face and killed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like you're stuck like, in the vortex of a legal system that even if she's in the exactly. right, she's got to deal with it exactly. for fucking ever. Exactly. And, 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 and the dude got arrested and is facing charges, assault charges and, and, and attempted rape. And um, But on the same note, this is like these, these um, the ways that we deal with, with, um, with criminals in general and like, I just I found jujitsu to be this thing where it was like, it's not based in. Well, well, there are a lot of men that do it. It was you know invented by dudes, but but there are tons of women, and it's in, and it's a way of diffusing stuff without you don't have to resort to the toxic masculinity. You don't have to resort to like it's not about like I'll fucking kill like you could really hurt somebody, mm-hmm. but the goal is everyone walks out alive. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everyone walks out alive. So. Anyway, that's yeah. enough. But that, but that's, but that. There's that that shit. Um, that's my my next cockamamie endeavor. Uh, also, I started doing a series of mixtapes um, while I I found myself <clears throat> becoming infuriated over the past few years at the number of high profile cases of black people, black men, or black people in general in America just being murdered systematically, murdered by the cops with little to no repercussions. Mm-hmm. Um, Particularly when the Ferguson, when the, when the whole Ferguson, Ferguson verdict was passed down and all that started happening, I was I was livid, but I also um, not surprised, but I was livid, and I had to go about my day to day life DJing, and I DJ in clubs all the time, and I play all kinds of shit, you know what I mean, and um, um and I found that like spinning every weekend to a group of to usually like like um, affluent white kids who just want to hear the most ratchet rap shit Mm -hmm. um, made me start to just well up with this anger and resentment. And I was like, I have to do something with this energy. I have to do something with this energy. But the problem is I'm not in a band right now, so I can't get on stage and scream about it. I've got no real outlet. I was like, got to go into my communicator toolbox and see what I got. Mm -hmm. And I was like, right now all we got is DJing. And DJing is this voiceless art that is largely relegated to like vacuous entertainment mm-hmm. you know what i mean like people's perception of it is that you are not a person who thinks nobody wants to think when they come to see me dj they just want to have a good well, time yeah. and dance and do all the shit that they do and um and so i was like i gotta find a voice i need to make i need a voice for djing and so i decided to make this mixtape that kind of summed up how i was feeling at the time and granted it's not particularly i needed to express I needed expression. Like, largely DJing is not about expression. It's about, mm-hmm. like, playing music and people reacting. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I wanted to pour myself into something. And I made a mixtape called Sound of the Beast, which was, uh, which was my, uh, I defined it as my, like, 48-minute riot. Mm-hmm. And, and even more interesting than, than the mixtape itself was the little foreword that I wrote uh, uh, about it. Um, and I, there's what is I paint my mind.org posted it up. They 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 posted it up. It's on my SoundCloud page. If you go to DJ, so people can hear it. Yeah, you can go. You can go. You can hear it. DJMajorTaylor.com. There's and my SoundCloud page is up there. But but read the forward. Definitely read the forward. Um, it's just like a brief thing. It's <clears throat> and it was like <clears throat> that was a um 
that was a great project because that was something that I never tried before. And it was once again, the idea of responsibility, mm -hmm. especially in the face of the, of doing what I do for a living, which is like going into bars and clubs and making people forget everything. Yeah. I didn't want them. I don't want them to forget everything all the time. I want them to like, I want to ask them uncomfortable questions. I want to make a mixtape that makes people go, Damn, right? What was really? You know, yeah, you, <laughs> you know, know what I mean? You don't just be a soundtrack to somebody's drug use. Right, exactly. Out, exactly. Party, exactly. Like, hey, exactly. Great. And while there's nothing wrong with those things, the fact that that is just, you know, the deterioration of our empathy and uh the uh the over the the hyper just kind of hyper sexualized, hyper fueled like drug, you know, just consumptive like nature of the world in general. Um I wanted to have something. I wanted to just like. I want something else. I, I want to to. I want to put something else out into the world. I mean, I don't fucking drink. I don't. I've never been drunk a day in my life. I mean, I've had alcohol, but and I'm not like. I don't think that I'm better than anybody for it. I don't preach about it. I'm not like you know. When I was a kid and I discovered like the straight edge movement, hell yeah, I was into that shit because I was like, there's a group of people that don't you know. But uh, but as I got older, obviously, I was like, this is fucking dumb. But, um, but I don't drink and I don't like, I, 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 why is it that the way that human beings socialize always has to be so, so, um, it has to be fueled by booze and why is it that every creative outlet has to be tapped into by some corporation, largely the most represented is alcohol companies and, and booze. Like, why is that? Why? Because I guess if you're using your brain too much, you're going to start asking questions. So if right. it's nice and smoothed over by right. some alcohol, then right. you're just going to do the fun stuff, like right. buying junk and acting right. Exa exactly, and exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so the thing is that, that, that like, once again, because I navigate that world mm -hmm. on a regular basis, I have to, there is that responsibility again. In order to be authentic and to be authentic Ralph and be who I am, like I had to run it through these three filters, yeah, yeah. and I have to figure out how to navigate this this tricky world because I'm still, I mean, it's, you know, I still, by and large, on the weekends, I'm playing at some club where people are just dumb, do, not dumb. I don't want to say that people are dumb, but I, but I'm playing at a club doing the thing that is expected at a club, like you know. But I have to find because I do that, I have to counterbalance it with something else. Yeah, because many of those people in the audience are probably not one car stop away from. A truncheon in the head right. or a bullet in the head. I mean, they're just not, they're not facing that reality. Right, right, right. So, and, and but I want to give them, I want them to know that that reality is a reality mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, and I want to, and I, but I don't also, I don't want to, my goal is not to ostracize anyone. I, I want us all to like, I want us all to win. You know what I mean? Yeah, I want yeah. us all to win. And, and, and I, I think that, um, it's a, uh, it's it's fucking it's tough man it's 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 tough it's tough but but i you know i think i found that in the past few years i think if i just stick to my principles crazy story last night i dj'd in brooklyn i spun at um union pool no I'm, that wasn't last night it was two nights ago where i was uh spun in union pool it's my first time I ever DJing there. Super fun. I come in. I don't know what's going on or what's happening. I'm spinning. The party is jumping. Everybody's having a great time. Guy comes up to me, and he just looks like kind of like he looks stoked. You know, mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's cool. This guy's enjoying himself. 
comes up to me, pulls out some money, and he just hands it to me. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. I go, but, but just so you know, I don't take requests. And he goes, but no, you're a great DJ, man. You're a great DJ. And I was like, thank you. I appreciate that. You know? um, and he's like, here. And he gives me more money. I'm not even looking at the money, but I just noticed that the bill that he handed me was a hundred dollar bill. Shit, man! And I, I was like, job. right, so I'm like, this is crazy, right? This guy, this is fucking crazy. And dude's like, can you play? Can you play something for me? I was like, just mm-hmm. so you know, I told you, man, I don't take requests. Yeah. I was like, here's your money, though. You don't have to give me this money. I don't have to take your money. Like, I don't want to take it if you're going to expect me to play something for you. And he's like, he's like, I just want to hear. This is how we do it. I got a girl out here, and I'm trying to make her fall in love with me. I love her. I want her to fall in love with me. And I was like, well, this is how we do it. It's not going to do it. That's not going to do it. What's going to do it is you dancing with her and having a good time to me crushing this party right now. Like, right, that's yeah, what's going to make her yeah. fall in love with you. Uh, not throwing money at me. Like, you know. <laughs> right. So, I was like, I- I'll take your money gladly because I, you know, I enjoy having money. <laughs> you know? But, but uh, 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 I was like, I'll take your money, but don't, but you, I'm going to put it right here if you ex- if are expecting me to play something for you. But mm-hmm. if you, if you don't have a good time, then you can take your money back. And he pulls off another $100 bill. Come on, man. You, you can't just play it. It's for love. It's for love. I was like, hold on a second. I take the $100 bill. I put it down. I drop, you can't hurry love. I'm like, you can't hurry love, man. You can't hurry love. The dude's like, you're amazing. You know, and I was like, uh, I was like, thank you. Well, if you think I'm amazing, let me do what I'm doing. And, you know, and enjoy yourself. And, and I'm like, and he's like, uh, you can make it happen. You can make her fall in love with me. And he just peels off another hundred. So this dude, by the time he walks away, leaving me six hundred dollars in cash Christmas. to yeah. play, and he's expecting me to play. This is how we do it. He comes back to me again and says, uh, and at this point, I took the money and I put it to the side because I didn't want to just have like a wad of six hundred. Yeah, yeah, that's gonna look a little weird. You know, so I pull out to the side. And he goes, "Well, the money's gone. That means you're gonna you're you're, you're gonna play the song. You play this how we do." And I was like. I'm not going to do it, man. There's no way you can convince me. I love what I do. I love this. I love the art of putting songs together. And I, I, my reputation is not based on playing songs over and over again. Like, you could spend, you could have bought t- 200 iPods for the amount of money you're giving me mm-hmm. and played the song 5,000 times. Yeah. Like, and he goes, I will give you $1,000 in cash right now. He starts pulling more money out. I was like, here's what you do here's my card. He take your money back, go dance with that girl, show her the best time you possibly can, and then I'll DJ your wedding. <laughs> and he goes, okay, okay, you will, you will, you will DJ our wedding. I was like, all right. So I was like, fuck. I was like, this is the fucking world we live in. Like motherfuckers that were like, I will give you a thousand dollars. People are starving. People are fucking dying. People have, there's all kinds of shit in the world that needs to be, that could use help. You know, there's all kinds of people that can be... You're in fucking New York City, for Christ's sake. You don't even have to look around the world. You could go a couple blocks away. You're so... But you're going to throw a $1,000 at a fucking DJ to play a goddamn mm. song, that, a stupid song from, you know what I mean, that was like... That I already played like an hour and a half ago anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's also... There's so much privilege wrapped up. This shit is so much... It's like entitlement and privilege. I was like, there's no there's no super PACs over here, my friend. No major Taylor super PAC. I'm not... <laughs> like... like, like that's everything that is wrong. I, I know that it's dumb, and I know that it's really small and fascio, but like, it's it's there is nothing that is everything that is like a little teeny. That's an eyedropper's worth of what is wrong with the world in general. 
the corruptibility, the idea that you can get whatever you want because capitalism rules fucking everything. And I was like, not tonight, my friend. Not tonight. I'm not playing. The f no, I, I don't care how much money you throw at me. You like, no, it's not happening. So my friends were like, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah, I would have so done I'm, it for like a dollar. <laughs> well, my, my integrity was <laughs> like, is that an actual real American dollar? I'll do it. I don't give a fuck. I was talking to, I was talking to DJ Low Budget. My, my, he's another one of my, my good friends, like Low B, and he was like, I'd have been like, this is how, we, this is how, yeah, yeah. this is how we do. And you want to play it again? I'll play it again, back to back. Back to again. A thousand dollars. So I was like, yeah, you know what? I, the, 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 and the thing about it is at moments like that, I was, it, it just doesn't like, I'm, I don't feel any way about it. But once again, it's also my privilege. Man. My privilege. I can afford to to say no, I'm not gonna take a thousand dollars to play a song mm -hmm. based on my principles, you know what I mean? But um uh uh I would like to think that if I couldn't afford it that I would still not have taken the money, but I don't know. We'll no, just say yes. You know, we'll say yes. We'll say yes. We'll say we'll yes. yes. And we'll say yes. <laughs> at that, since it is uh, 10 o'clock in the afternoon, we will end our discussion. But okay. thank you very much, Ralph, for doing thank it. Thank you for a, having me. Any, any time. I got, we'll do part two next time. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, thanks. <laughs>